two men on a dream vacation. What the hell are they doing? I sure think they killed her. Back! Frank, they've seen us. And get trapped in an unbelievable nightmare. Why? What's wrong? What are you guys up to? 20th Century Fox presents Race the Devil. We saw somebody murdered. What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches? There was no one they could trust. Well, did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? Won't we a trip? Have a good time. Leave this up to me. There was nothing they could do. They followed us all the way from Bandera. He's here right now watching us. But run. And fight. Shoot him, Frank! And race with the devil. There's somebody on top! Frank, it's got to leave! We gotta stay in here! Don't go up! Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, Loretta Swit, Lara Parker. Race with the Devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better be faster than hell. Hey everybody, it's Ben Reiser. Um, welcome to another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. I, I know probably some of you were thinking there wasn't going to be another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. I was kind of thinking that too, uh, but uh, then I had some other thoughts. Uh, I was I was doing a, um, I was working on something uh, leading up to Christmas, uh, which was... Um, uh, a production of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens uh, for the Children's Theater of Madison. And it was, they were doing like, they would normally have like a, like a stage production every year. Uh, but obviously this year they weren't going to do that. So they did this video version where they got like 80 different people from uh, actors and politicians and community members and kids to sort of uh, be narrators uh, for this half hour version. It was almost like a radio drama version of A Christmas Carol, but the, they did, they recorded themselves on iPhones, then sent me all that footage and I sort of had to put it together with some nice backgrounds and shit. Anyway, all that is to say that I kept hearing over and over again uh, the beginning of that show which i think is the beginning of the story which is uh marley was dead and i kept i keep thinking i kept thinking i need to start this show by saying mike was dead which is a terrible terrible way to start the show (laughs) and an example of me thinking and overthinking and overthinking this whole fucking thing uh but i'm assuming that everyone who's uh, listening to this now probably knows that my co-host mike mcpadden died suddenly in the middle of december um 
But um, I know he would have wanted me to go on. He loved doing this show with me, and he would have yelled at me if I if I didn't try to keep it going. But I couldn't really think of who to keep it going with. And I couldn't quite figure out why I wasn't coming up with people, because obviously Mike and I had a million guests, and I've got all kinds of coworkers, uh, friends, colleagues who you know love to talk about movies and who I've talked about movies with off and on my whole life. Uh, and then I think I realized, and th- then I came up with the guy who you're about to hear from. Um, and I think that the key component for why, when I thought of him, I immediately was like, oh shit, that's, that's who I want to do this with. That's who it makes the most sense for me. That That's getting me excited in a way that nothing else has. And I think it's because um, I was intimidated by Mike <laughs> and he made me, uh, his knowledge of film and how funny he was and how articulate he was made me always want to bring my A game to this show. Like I couldn't just sort of coast on the normal bullshit that I would, uh, use <laughs> for the rest of my life. Uh, I, you know, I needed to be sharp. And then I, I think I realized that Scott also is, feels like a very intimidating <laughs> choice of, of, of somebody to talk to, uh, for different reasons than Mike. Uh, although probably some of the same reasons, because the more I, sort of uh, uh, a stock Scott on the internet, the more I'm like, fuck, this fucking guy knows uh, way more than I do about movies. Anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my co-host for this episode and maybe maybe future episodes if there are some, uh, Mr. Scott Lucas. Scott, tell, tell them about yourself. A Hi, um, Scott. Thanks for asking me to do this. I'm, I'm in a band called Local H, and uh, I spend all of my time when I'm not doing that kind of watching movies uh, and that's been the way it's been for a while I guess uh, yeah so when yeah. did it start what do you remember like what when the bug bit you or whatever the fuck they say I mean I guess pro- when I was a kid uh, you mm-hmm. know but uh, so like growing up like most of, like the movie that we're going to talk about like I first saw on television uh, yeah, so me too. most of the movies I first saw on television from the seventies um, with my mom, and so it was either uh, I think I saw this one on Friday night at the movies. Uh, if the, if that wasn't it, it was Tuesday night at the movies or Sunday night at the movies. Uh, one of those three, um, and that was just kind of a thing. You know, I mean, when she took me to see, I, the first movie she took me to see was either Young Frankenstein or Bambi, and I can't remember which one. And at this point, it really doesn't matter. And I think I was a goner pretty much from then. You know, and, and throughout my life, I've gone through different periods. Like, I remember seeing uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and just seeing movies nonstop and then kind of going away. And then seeing Platoon and then going to see a couple of years where I just go see movies all the time. And then that went away. And then at some point, I just, uh, maybe in the late 90s, I started going to see movies. Oh, I, I think it was Reservoir Dogs that got me back into movies. Because I was kind of like, fuck movies, they're all the same. Then I saw Reservoir Dogs and I was like, oh, yeah, they're all the same, but this one's kind of cool. And then I kind of just started going to movies since then and haven't stopped um you know pretty much because I, c- I can afford it now <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i i saw this movie 
sort of saw it for the first time on TV, too. I, I have this very specific memory. First of all, you know, I, we used to get TV Guide. I'm four years older than you, so I'm a little older than you. But it sounds like you had a um, uh, an easier time of watching movies that were in primetime, even though you were probably younger than me when you saw uh, Race with the Devil. Did we say the name of the movie yet? Race with the Devil. Race with the Devil, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, they would start at eight, and, right? And I remember, like, the biggest fight I would have was trying to stay awake. Yeah, and uh, I'd get really pissed off when I realized I was getting carried to bed by my dad. It's like, no, I want to watch the rest of the movie. He's like, you're fucking gone, man. It's over. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, so I had a harder time because I was living on the East Coast, and so. Eight o'clock for you was nine o'clock for us. So like right. prime time was like, you know, movies would end at eleven o'clock. And I'm and I know that in the seventies, like in seventy, this movie came out in seventy five. So it was probably on TV in seventy seven, maybe. Um, uh, you know, made its premiere. And I and I so I would get we would get TV Guide every week, and I would pour through the TV Guide and sort of I either circle or at least just sort of memorize. Well, movies and 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 prepare myself to yeah. to watch. Me too. You know, movies movies during the day, but movies during. I remember seeing the ads for this and the and the write up in TV Guide and being like, oh shit, this is something I really want to see. And uh, we had this uh, TV room up on the third floor of our house, and my dad would plop himself down every night and watch TV. And I think the first. Uh, Hurdle was convincing him that Race with the Devil was something that he should put on and that we should watch, which he did. Uh, But I think, like, you know, I I feel like either during or right after the ritual murder scene in the first, which is, I think, in the first half hour, uh, it was like, okay, you got to go to bed. You know, maybe because he was like, oh, fuck, I don't want him seeing this or... But also, I was like, okay. But but I also remember something that I would do from time to time, and I definitely did it with Race with the Devil, was that I would go downstairs to the second floor where my bedroom was, and then if I didn't fall asleep immediately, I would sneak back up the stairs to the third floor and, and sort of like quietly sort of listen to the movie that he was then watching. And, and if I, I could sort of get a good angle from the staircase into that room and sort of see a little bit of the TV. So I remember... Sneaking back up and hearing and kind of seeing a little bit more of the movie before my mom at some point caught me and was like, hey, you got to go back to bed. But I was when I was watching it again this week, it kind of reminded me of the parallax view for some weird reason. Well, a couple of reasons, one which I'll get into later. But I think I think the other reason it kind of reminded me of that is only because I had a similar experience with the parallax view, which I think I watched a couple of years later. And by then I had my own small black and white TV like on my night it was like a tiny fucking thing like a five inch screen yeah. and it was on my night table next to my bed and i was allowed to watch tv but like at a certain point i had to i was the instructions were to turn down the brightness and the contrast all the way so that the screen was black and then it was sort of like listening to the radio like i right. could fall asleep listening to a tv but not actually watching it and so that happened with the parallax view so i watched like the first hour of the parallax view and then only listen to the rest of it. And like the last half hour of that movie, there's no dialogue. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you, you, I had no idea what was going on, but there's ominous music and then there's a marching band. And so then you're listening like, to the end of Parallax View while you're trying to sleep. So yeah. in a way, you're going through this 
kind of thing what the character is going through, what Warren <laughs> yes. Beatty is going through. Yeah, yeah. You're like being brainwashed in your sleep as a child. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah, it was it was perfect. Uh, yeah. But but I you know I I like I didn't know what happened, and this was all pre internet, pre anything, and so I you know I woke up the next morning. Dying to know, like feeling in my heart that something bad happened to Warren Beatty, <laughs> but not knowing for sure. And it was like more, you know, and then when I finally did get to catch up to it and to see it, I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, that brings up a point about like you asked me starting when did I become a cinephile? A lot of the stuff about was I was into movies that I wasn't old enough to see yet. And so I was reading a lot about these movies, and I, I'd read Pauline Kael reviews or uh, Rolling Stone reviews at the library. And so I'd be, or I'd see uh, sneak previews, and I'd see Ebert talk about Raging Bull, or, or you know, I was obsessed with Taxi Driver before I was ever allowed to see it. You know, that was my favorite movie, and I'd never even seen it. Um, so, like, I, I had an opinion about movies before I'd even seen these things. I mean, it almost reminds me of that character in Metropolitan where he's talking about how he doesn't read novels. He only reads good criticism, you know. Uh, (laughs) I was kind of like that for a few years. Yeah. No, I was totally that way, too, with sneak previews and Siskel and Ebert and also Pauline Kael. I remember reading her. I had never heard of Brian De Palma, and I read her review of The Fury when it came out and she wrote a rave review of the yeah. fury, which is kind of funny in retrospect. <laughs> really, yeah. Was like, yeah. <laughs> but, but I was like, oh, and she, you know, as I was, I was, as I was saying to somebody else a couple weeks ago, like in the seventies, every single movie that had any sort of suspense element was always being called Hitchcockian. It was like, that's all you ever heard. Mm. You know, when we were talking on one episode about Capricorn one and um, and Pat Healy was saying, you know, it's not. And I kept saying, you know, I remember this movie. You know, everyone was calling it like, oh, it's Hitchcockian. And he's like, it's not. It's like a, it's like an Alan J. Pakula ripoff. It's sort of like, you know, it's like a like a dime store novel version of All the President's Men. And, th- you know, it's that kind of a conspiracy, like a, like a parallax view right. as well. And uh, yes, that's absolutely true. But at the time, it was just like, that's what critics would say. They would just kept dropping the word Hitchcock. And, and Pauline Kael certainly said that about uh, De Palma's work. Well, and of course, De Palma was actually it's Hitchcockian. It's very fitting, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I rem- but you know, but my, my, first, my first two memories, other than Fantasia, which, I, which my parents told me was the first movie that I got taken to and i definitely remember having nightmares about the sorcerer's apprentice section of that movie uh for years i i think that's still the basis of every nightmare that i have has some sort of element of sorcerer's apprentice in it the sort of the overwhelming um mops or whatever the fuck uh-huh. you know that yeah. come to life like that that's sort of like uh limitless invasion of something is i think a big part of when I have nightmares. Uh, yeah, I have very similar nightmares, uh, but they're based on Dawn of the Dead. And mm. I have reoccurring Dawn of the Dead nightmares. And I, I had them when I was a kid before I had even saw the movie. That was another one I was completely obsessed with and had no no hope in hell of seeing it. Dude, that was, I mean, by the time Dawn of the Dead, I, like I said, I'm a little older than you. So by the time Dawn of the Dead had, had come uh, was released... 
Uh, my parents were letting me see just about everything, but that was rated X yeah. or NR or whatever. Which only they, made me want to see it more. Exactly. And they yeah. drew the line and like, no, you're not seeing that. Um, and I remember going to a multiplex uh, in Brooklyn that was that was showing, I don't know, four different movies, including Dawn of the Dead. And not really having the courage to sneak into Dawn of the Dead because uh-huh. I just had this thing like my parents are going to be mad at me. Right. Uh, but I did stand outside the doors in the lobby and listen to Dawn of the Dead. So again, just like fucking Parallax View and Race with the Devil, I heard Dawn of the Dead before I ever saw it. So it was um, much worse. Than yeah. When you finally saw it, you're like, oh, it's mm-hmm. not that bad. Well, no, it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, it was. I thought it was the greatest. But it wasn't thing as scary as you thought no. it was going to be, right? No, there's not. There's no way that it could be as scary as it is just to listen to it. Um, you know, and because yeah. the, the music is so great, that Goblin stuff, and then all the all the library music that he always uses. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, aside from uh, uh, Fantasia, the the movies. Uh, that I remember seeing first and really having a huge impact on me were North by Northwest, which I saw on the campus of uh, Cornell University, uh, which is in Ithaca, New York. And every summer, my parents would take us camping at Buttermilk Falls State Park, which is also in Ithaca. And we'd be in this stupid (laughs) tent for like a week and living off the concession stand that was over by the natural pool at the bottom of the waterfalls. Uh, but there was a drive-in theater that they we would occasionally get to go to. And then Cornell, you know, had like a whatever the fuck, like a cinema program or something. And I just remember going, uh, my parents taking us to see North by Northwest in an auditorium on the campus of Cornell. And I was, you know, I was just, and that this, was I it. thought that was the greatest fucking thing ever. And, um, and then also the other thing that I, and this was on TV, I saw this British horror film omnibus thing called dead of night have you ever seen that i just saw it for the first time last Halloween. oh wow yeah wow yeah we showed it on um i guess i should say i work at the university of wisconsin at uw cinematech and the wisconsin film festival i always like to get those plugs in uh but yeah we showed it a couple years at my insistence because i had never seen it in a theater and it was uh they had made a dcp of it it looked beautiful yeah uh, I, i think that's an amazing movie Especially some sections of it. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I really dug the uh, the golfing buddies. Well, that's that's very funny and crazy. Yeah. And uh, I've now seen other movies with those guys playing those characters. Did you know that they do those? No, that those guys are part of like other movies, like just more straight comedies. So were those movies made before that, and that was just kind of a callback to that? That's a good question. I can't remember where it came in their in their journey as as a I guess sort of like a comedy duo. Right. Uh, I'll find out. But uh, but the one that I, that haunted me <laughs> um, it was the story about the kid. They're playing hide and seek, and the girl goes up to the attic to hide and finds this boy hiding there, and then she discovers by the end that the, that he's a ghost. That. Uh-huh fucking freaked me out forever <laughs> like yeah. that still is like this creepiest thing i've ever seen so anyway now wait I you mean, all, I, I learned this about you recently you also you worked in a movie theater for some amount of time i did still the best job i ever had uh the dunes theater in in zion which is no longer there zion's there but the movie theater isn't um i would argue that it should be the other way around um <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it was great. You know, I did. Yeah, I got to do everything. You know, you, the ticket taker, uh, 
selling the tickets, being an usher. I got to actually put the films together and take them apart. And oh, wow. Them and yeah, so, so it was good, you know, I framed the movies and, you know, I mean... I was a huge pain in the ass in, in a theater before everything went digital. Like, if something wasn't framed correctly, I would bitch at the kids working there and stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah. But you, know, you, were, you weren't actually, it. like, the, the full-time projectionist or anything, were you? Well, we used a platter system. And oh, okay. so, so what you would do is you'd take the reels the night, yeah. the night before it opened, and you'd put them all together. And most movies were eight or nine reels. And you'd put it on a platter, and then you'd thread it through the projector... And you'd start the movie, and you'd go in every once in a while to check on it, but you didn't have to sit there the way uh, a two-projector projectionist would have to do. Right. Um, but it was it was close enough for me that it was it was a lot of fun, and you know you'd get the get the 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 film all dirty from the film and everything, especially if it was black and white. Uh, it was great. I, I loved working with film, and uh, it was. Uh, yeah, the best job, except for all the popcorn. Smell like popcorn. <laughs> and I hate popcorn. I hate it. I hate it so much. And I'm pretty sure it's because of that job. Because you just sit there and eat popcorn all fucking day. And uh, plus, why is popcorn the snack? Why? It makes so much noise. You go to a Holocaust movie and people are chomping on popcorn. <laughs> like, well, what's going on here? Yeah, I don't get. It. I don't know. That's a good. I, we, we should research that. It's got to like, be the why? corn. Uh, you know, big corn. Right. It all big, comes big down to big corn. corn. Right. Right. Why? Why is anything happening? It's all because of corn. Yeah, corn syrup. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a job uh, right after I graduated from college. I got a job at a revival house in New York, uh, the Thalia Soho, which was a real dump. Uh, and but it seemed like it would have been a dream job for me because I had just gone through four years of film school and was like, yeah, yeah, for movies. Uh, but um, you know, it was it sounded even more threadbare than your operation in that like I would literally be the only person working other than the projectionist, and it was a two projector system, so they needed yeah. a real union guy, I guess. Uh, right. But I was doing everything else, and there was nobody else there. So I'd open this fucking place at like 11 o'clock in the morning and I'd sell tickets for the first, you know, it was always double features of like, you know, old movies, uh, which again, sounds like perfect, but I never got to see any of those things because I was always either in the box office. And if I wasn't in the box <laughs> office, like I was in the middle of the movie, I'd have to go down to where the concession stand was, which was sort of like in the basement of this place and then sell concessions because there was nobody else working. Right. So if there was anything to do, it was me. And I don't think I ever saw like a single fucking minute of anything at that theater. And I only I lasted a month, and then oh. I quit. I was making like six dollars an hour, and I was it was like sixteen hour shifts, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I mean, there are movies that I know every line of from the period when I worked at that theater, you know, and and I know exactly when they're coming, and exactly what happened, you know, that whole period from like eighty seven to around eighty eight and eighty nine. I know all those fucking movies backwards and forwards, whether or not I like them. Um, and <laughs> what crazy. was what was the one that do you remember what you like saw and were, was into the most during that during your stint there? In that period, you know, I mean, that's like when Full Metal Jacket and Platoon was out. So those movies, like Platoon, really knocked me out. And so when it came to the theater that I was working at. 
you know, I was just super psyched. Like, all the movies I liked, other than something like Platoon, really didn't do very well. I, I remember when Dead Ringers came, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. We got Dead Ringers. We got to put it in the big theater. Yeah. Nobody was there. It, automatically, after the first showing, I had to yank it down to the, the smallest theater. Uh, you know, and, all, and the big movies that would play were like, I remember Can't Buy Me Love was really, really popular at that theater and sold out shows all the time. And I fucking hated it. And I'd sit there and I'd listen to people, dumbasses walking out like, oh, it had a good message. And it completely enraged me. And, you know, meanwhile, there's one person watching Dead Ringers. What, they didn't think Dead Ringers had a good message? <laughs> no, no, people people didn't like Dead Ringers in no, my no. hometown. I, I, no. I saw that movie twice when it, when it was in theaters, and I think I was like the only person in the theater both times. It was, yeah, that was like a total. And that was his... It's a good date fa- movie. That was, that was what he got to do after like hitting big time with The Fly. And right. It was like, okay, and then... Yeah, he never he never looked back. Like he's no. never gone commercial. No, he yeah. did. He was never in it for the money, was he? No, no. The first Cronenberg movie I saw, at, and, and I saw it in the theater when it came out, was Scanners, and I just thought this is this is the best. Oh yeah. And then you know, then went back and caught up to everything else, and uh, yeah, I still. I guess the last movie of his that I really thought was great was History of Violence, but I'll, I'll see anything he puts out. I like Map of the Stars. I think that's pretty good. I, I, I think it's pretty good. I didn't think it was great. I have a problem with the whole History of Violence and Eastern Promises thing. Like Those don't really feel like Cronenberg movies to me. There's something really off about them, and I know that's kind of the point, but, but it just feels not off enough. Uh, I don't know. What I'm totally with you on Eastern Promises. I don't like that movie, I, and it doesn't feel like Cronenberg to me at all. And it feels very sort of like old school and sort of stagey and like stiff in a yeah, way. You don't think History of Violence is is like that as well? I think it's weird. I think it's got some weird stiffness to it, but I think it's more deliberate, and I think it's stranger in its weirdness. Like I think that character of the son. That yeah. performance is I was so just fucking thinking weird. About him. What a weird performance! <laughs> yeah, but I think like it's got to be deliberate, especially because I feel like Cronenberg is a guy who got the best performances out of his leading men for such a long time. I mean, I don't think Christopher Walken has ever done anything near as great as he is in Dead Zone. Really? And uh, yeah. Wow. And I actually think that Dead Zone is one of my favorite Cronenberg movies. Um, and and one of the only movies that even comes close to figuring out how to make a movie out of a Stephen King book. Yeah, that's a. It, I guess there's something weird about that too. I when I when I now that you mention it, when you think of Dead Zone and you compare it to those History of Violence and Eastern Promises, they do kind of feel similar. There's a chilliness to it, and uh, I don't know. But in Eastern well, Promises, yeah, there's never a point where Walken goes, the ice is going to break. <laughs> right. Right. The, right. But, I mean, there's, um, the, you know, to, I can't remember if Eastern Promises is based on a novel or something I think else. But both History of Violence and Eastern Promises are based on graphic, graphic novels. novels. Yeah. And that's probably what set me off. So that's pro- that is probably, I mean, there is, you're right. I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody's going to ask me what is, you know, 
define David Cronenberg through his movies, I would only ever just say, you know, Scanners and The Brood and um, Videodrome. You know, that's, oh, that's like great. the top three. Yeah, I mean, that's those are the ultimate Cronenbergs. The first Cronenberg to me that I didn't totally love and still have problems with is The Fly, actually. That's the one where I thought, like, this doesn't really, this is like trying to bridge this gap between Cronenberg and a traditional sort of Hollywood horror movie remake and it's the horror movie elements that feel off for me in the fly and i think it's this i think it's the makeup effects um i mean some of the makeup effects are okay but when jeff goldman was like the full fly or almost the full fly i just don't i don't know it just seems a little weird cheesy canon film 80s when he breaks through that window and stuff, it just seems a little like over the top in a way that I'm not, I wasn't into. Yeah, there's an operatic quality to it, but you know, the, the your body turning against you is very Cronenberg. I mean, I, it's really interesting. To I, absolutely, that. thematically, finds, it is. Right, he finds sure. a way to do all those things that you don't like, but still make a hit because he incorporates those into something that he really made a career on. And that was 86. Oh, my God. The best double feature I'd ever been to when I was... uh, It was The Fly and Aliens. And that was was what summer movies were to me back then. You know, they were R-rated. It was awesome. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that. I went to see The Fly opening night in Times Square. This isn't 70s. This is 80s. Well, what are we talking about here? Don't worry. You know, at some point we'll get to the movie. Okay. But we'll get to it in one second. I just have to give you this anecdote about seeing The Fly on opening night at some theater in Times Square, and it was almost sold out. And by the time we got into the theater, the only seats left were in the front row. And we sat down in the front row, and then there were two other seats, and me and my friends were there, and then two other seats in the front row. And at the very last second, the last people coming to the theater and sit down next to us in the front row were Penn and Teller. Oh. So that's who I saw the fly with. <laughs> so you saw a lot of movies in Times Square. I didn't because I lived in Brooklyn, so that wouldn't necessarily be my like. I didn't go into Manhattan that often to see some. Where see movies, was that but. picture of you in front of Conquest of Planet of the Apes? That is another Times Square thing. So that's yeah. that, and that was like a day out with my grandparents. That's me Pretty and my jealous of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's the best, and that that's actually the inspiration for this whole show. Is I, sh- you know, Mike was like, let's do a podcast, and I was like, okay. He's like, let's talk about our childhoods in New York and going to the movies, and I'm like, I don't remember any of that shit. Yeah, but then I came across that photo, and it like hit me like so hard. I'm like, I remember everything about this day. And Conquest of the Planet Apes was the first apes movie that I ever saw, and I saw it in a movie theater, um, and my grandparents took me to it, and I just. That I maybe that's the thing that hooked me. Maybe seeing Conquest of the Planet of the Apes in Times Square when I was, I guess, six years old. Yeah, that that, that might have done it for me. I could totally see that. I could totally see that. Uh, and that was the first Planet of the Apes movie you saw. Yeah, I mean, yep. I remember having a really crazy experience seeing the King Kong remake. Seventy six. Seventy six in yeah. a th- in a theater, and my sister started screaming and crying when they 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 tied Jessica Lang up yeah. and 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 I the the preview before the movie was network where they're all screaming mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mad as hell and I'm going to take it anymore which scared the fuck out of me yeah and that was you know 
ape movies. You know, the, just that whole thing. There, it was, it was huge. They must have remade King Kong because of those Planet of the Ape movies. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he was thinking. Maybe. That. But so maybe. But you didn't see a lot of movies in Times Square in the seventies. I didn't. I I was not like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because my grandfather uh, was an embroiderer and had his own. I'm just going to say it was a sweatshop in mm-hmm. Times Square. And so he was there all the time. And I went and worked for him one summer when I was really young. But, you know, I was just like, oh, I'm going to hang out with my grandfather all summer at his shop and I'll do little things. But even then, but I the, the, those movies, all the Times Square, you know, um, all those theaters scared me. Like yeah. they, they just seem terrifying. Like I couldn't imagine what was going on in there. <laughs> you know, never mind the movies, but just the theaters themselves. And yeah. so, no, I didn't. I didn't go to a lot of movies like on Forty Second Street. Although when I finally was able, to, well, when I was finally a little bit older and got to see Dawn of the Dead, it was at a revival in this theater that was not a movie theater, but it was in Times Square. I think it was called the Harold Clerman Theater. And it was basically a live theater, but for some reason they were having like a George Romero festival and they were showing all of his movies and they had set up like a screen and a little sound system and a projector. And that's how I got to see Dawn of the Dead uh, eventually. And by then it was probably like 1982 or something. Um, But anyway, no, I didn't get to, but Mike, Mike in his, uh, you know, in, in the nineties in the late eighties and nineties when he was in high school and then when he was in college and after college, he went to 42nd street all the time and was constantly in those theaters. Yeah. Has written all sorts of shit about it. It sounds amazing. It does. I mean, I, I, I never went to any of the theaters, uh, until the nineties. But whenever I was in New York in the nineties, I would go to the movies a lot. And, you know, it was just me and a bunch of homeless people and I'm watching Oleana and nobody's in the theater <laughs> except a bunch of homeless people sleeping. Um, but, you know, you can't help but sit there and think about what those places were like in the 70s, you know. Yeah. So you'd be on tour and you'd be in New York to play a show and you would find time to. Yeah, but we also went to New York a lot to do press or to oh, sure. record or just to meet people from the label that we were on at the time. So, so yeah, like, you know, like, like we were talking about with TV Guide, like I knew as soon, every time, every town I get into, I know exactly what's playing when and where it is. And yeah. I'll be talking to somebody and I'll start to drift and like, <laughs> right. what's going on? It's like, well, I, I know I just missed, uh, you know, this screening of, and it's still this way. It's like, yeah. You know, Solaris just started. I, I missed my chance to go see that. And that's that's amazing. So you still do that when you're on the road. You're like checking out the movie schedules. Oh, it's the first thing I do when I when I hit town. It's to figure out what, what how close the theater is to where we're playing and if I can check something out after sound check. And then the second thing I do is figure out where to eat. So this is, that's what I was going to say. So I was, uh, you know, I've been in bands. I only ever went on tour with my, with a band like once on my own, with my own band. And it was a tour that my mom booked for us. So, <laughs> but, but I was, I did have a job and I meant to look up what year it was, but whatever it was, uh, I had hooked up. I had, I can, I, we kept sending, my band kept sending demos to, um, 
uh, Bar None Records and this guy Glenn Morrow in um, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, they had they might be giants like first couple albums yeah. and the other the other major artist well to me anyway that they had was this guy Freddie Johnston mm-hmm. and at some point after Freddie had released this Can You Fly album which I, I don't know must be in 90 91 92 something 93 I can't somewhere in the early 90s did they put out uh, any Renz records or am I that I think that might be yeah I yeah. think so um Otis Ball um a whole bunch of I, I uh, yeah probably more famous bands i just don't remember yeah but glenn uh he never he never released any of our music but he sort of became friends with me and he knew that i was into freddy johnston who i'd only learned about because glenn had sent me the album when it got released and he said freddy is looking for a road manager i think is what he called it but it was really somebody to drive the van and 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 put together the drum kit and (laughs) um, uh, change guitar strings none of which i had any real experience with even though i'd been in bands for probably close to 10 years at that point but you know i i I still it still probably took me like a half an hour to string a guitar but anyway yeah but he said hey freddy needs somebody to go out on the road with him for a month would you do it and i'm like fuck yeah like i was working at the park slope copy center making six dollars an hour and freddy was going to pay me three hundred dollars a week which just seemed like wow oh my god and I, i get to go on the road and and for half of that month, he was opening for a tour. So you might know the what year it was based on this. It was the year that Gravediggers Union and um, It's a Shame About Ray came out because Soul Asylum and Lemonheads were touring those albums and Freedy was their opening act for a couple of weeks. Is that 92? So yeah, okay, 92. Uh, I believe you. Um, so that, so, I mean, it was the greatest thing in the world for me. I didn't know, I, I knew... I knew I knew Soul Asylum's music kind of. Yeah. I didn't know anything about Lemonheads, and then I got to see two weeks worth of shows of theirs. And sort of by the second night, I was like, "Wait, the Lemonheads are now my favorite band. Right. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard." And Evan Dando was like, you know, just constantly playing an acoustic guitar backstage, you know, in front of stage all day long in the club. Like that's all this fucking guy did was either smoke weed or play like Neil Young covers to anyone who wanted to listen or, right. and to join in. Like he, he was like a really nice, friendly guy. You know, I always read bad things about Evan Dando and probably most of them are true, but I just never experienced that. I always as a goofball. Yeah. Well. Yeah. As a goofball, but like a real talented, uh, quite a voice. Anyway, yeah amazing yeah. voice yeah so why was i even telling you oh <laughs> we're never going to talk about race of the devil but you have to do a lot of editing I, my friend what, nah fuck that but i mean but the but the thing that i learned when i was on the road with freedy is that what they what freedy and all his all his bandmates and and these are professional guys um mark spencer and uh, jared michael nickerson all i don't know if you know any of these guys but they're sort of like studio guys who also will play on the road and mm-hmm. have been with much bigger bands throughout their careers but they would explain to me that there were different kinds of band there were bands who were focused on food and bands who were focused on drinking you know like every band had its own sort of like set of priorities when they would go like what they would want to figure out when they got to a new town so you are movies and food well you got to be a little bit of food i mean everybody's about the food and uh but yeah, before the downtime before the show is always looking for a movie, um, and sometimes that would get really frustrating. But yeah, that was always and still is that way. 
But, you know, yeah. food's good and drinking is good, too. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with all that stuff as well. I just try to. Yeah. I like all of it. You know, I don't think you have to choose. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought we would talk about, and we'll, maybe we'll get to it in a, in a little bit when we talk about Race with the Devil, is is the whole concept of these guys having these high-speed car chases in this RV. and. Yeah. What, what it's like driving endlessly in these big fucking vehicles. I don't know what, what you've driven over the years or what you've been driven in. Uh, we, we jam Meccano. And you've always, it's always been that, always an Econoline van, that's it? No, I mean, it was a Econoline van, and then there was a period where uh, we were in a bus and then uh, uh, went back to the, the van. I mean, most bands, once they go to the bus... That's it. It's a bus forever. They're, they're going to break up. It, it. I think it's really hard for a lot of people to go from the van to the bus back to the van. Um, but honestly, I mean, we did a tour a couple of years ago and we got back in a bus and I hated it. I, I, I just, I, I like the fact that I don't have to get up and I, and I like being able to watch a movie late at night. But other than that, just the whole world going by and you don't see it. I, I don't, never really liked it. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has its perks and the bus and the, uh, van can be a pain in the ass, but I prefer it, especially now. Do you like to do some of the driving or are you just along for the ride? Uh, yeah, I like to do some of the driving. Uh, but, but at the same time, I'm also doing, you know, you know, the, the merch from the night before and, and the money and putting all that in our spreadsheets. So, uh, I can't drive as much, and and, and my guy Ryan, uh, the drummer, he, he loves to drive, so it's not really a problem. I remember seeing you, and this was a long time ago, in New York at the, um, I think it was at the Knitting Factory, mm-hmm. and it was maybe the first time that I saw this happen, or at least one of the first times, where you were fucking, whatever, you, whatever your last epic that you played was. I can't remember which which one of your you know you've probably got you've got like three sort of show ending you know masterpieces that okay. just end in endless you know layers of feedback and stuff. Right. Uh, yes, uh, and it was it was one of those, and but everything was still ringing, the guitar amps were still on everything, and you just fucking jumped off the stage and walked straight, made a beeline to the back of the club, which is where the merch table was, and just immediately you were like selling shit. While the fucking, while everything was still, and I was like, this guy is fucking nuts, first of all, and goddamn, what a professional. Well, like, which it was. that, yeah, that, I mean, that, once again, that's how we started doing stuff. I would sell the merch after the shows, and then I didn't do that for years, and then once we got to the point where it was like, well, what are you going to do, sit backstage, or, and we pay somebody, and I was like, nah, I'll just do it. You know, I'll just go out there, and I did it before, I'll do it again. And I didn't really see it as a demotion that I should feel bad about. I know it's a demotion, but it never really made me feel like, I didn't feel like a loser. I don't feel like a loser for selling our own merch. I actually, that's one of the things that you can get from us that you're not gonna get from some other bands. Um, Absolutely. And I know as a fan, I never thought of it as anything other than this is so fucking cool. Like, this is so great. It's so great that he's doing this. This is so fucking cool. Yeah. And that was never something that we thought about. It was it was kind of like, well, let's we can't afford to pay somebody. And, 
you know, do we trust them with our money? And you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, all right, I'll do it. And, and, uh, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll wait, whatever. Uh, so the, the fact that it became cool was something that was an absolute accident, which is kind of the way everything has happened to us. Like the two piece thing was just a way to survive. Like, you know, we couldn't find a bass player, a bass player quit and everybody that we, we tried out wasn't working. And it, we had to, we had booked a show and we had to figure out a way to do it. And everything was just a way to just make it to the next show and, and keep the band going somehow. Um, Here's what I was thinking this past week about two pieces and you and local H and I don't know why I never thought of this before and I'm I'm not going to be surprised if you tell me yeah yeah everyone says this about this you know they people say that being in a band is like being married but that's not true for most bands it's being being in a band is like being in like a fucking three or four or five way orgy I guess or like or like a Mormon marriage with sister wives or something. But as it and 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 I also I just I never thought this way, but I get the vibe that people maybe would think that it's a cop out to only have a two piece band. It's like that it's because you're some kind of egomaniac or something and don't mm-hmm. want to deal with these other people. Right. But it dawned on me that no, being in a two piece that that's like being in a marriage, and that seems like a much deeper, much more important relationship to just be with one other person on stage and one other person in the studio, and to just have that connection with one other person, and that's a real fucking marriage, and is probably even harder to 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 sustain and maintain and to and to to deal with over a long period of time. I mean, it could t- totally be a drag, you know, uh, but it. It's almost like it depends on the band that you tour with. We'll tour with some bands sometimes. Like, oh man, they're like a gang. You know, we wish we were like right. a gang, and you know, then we right. kind of join their gang for the tour. And we're not really so much a two pieces. We're part of the band that we're touring with. And then other times, it's like, wow, they hate each other, and this sucks, and I don't want <laughs> yeah. anything to do with that. And we'll just become like inseparable. And it's like, let's go eat, and you know, there yeah. they go. You know the, the married couple. You know that. Yeah. So yeah, it, but it, it it works both ways. Um, it, it you can really bond together and and protect yourself from other people. And then at other times, you know, it's it, it's easier to get with a, a another band because there's less of you. I mean, it, having less of you is a way to survive, and it's also. You know, it has its ups and downs, like it, anything. I guess, yeah, I guess it's like a marriage. I've never been married, so I don't really know. So, uh, Race with the Devil. Uh, it starts with um, a pretty cool opening title sequence. Right, and doesn't it remind you of Rosemary's Baby? Yeah. Like the yes. not, not, like the, the poster and part of the trailer. And is that part of the dream scene that the trailer is in? Where you... That's not in the movie where you see the, the, uh, the stroller on top of the, the <laughs> right. Hill. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. And where when she's ha- well when she's when she, when she's having sex with the devil and she's hallucinating, right? Yes. Is that scene in the movie or is that just a scene that's in the trailer? I think that scene is in the movie, or at least there is a hallucinatory dream sequence well, in the middle definitely, of Rosemary's Baby. Definitely, but that Baby. shot is that in hmm, the movie? That's a good question. And I, I can't to remember. Check. But it's definitely in the trailer. And as soon as, 
as soon as the uh, the credits started for this, I was like, oh, that's I never put two and two together. Well, what interests me about the opening credits are two things. First of all, it's a, it's that's it's the, so it's the central image of this film, which is that scary tree, right? And it's the silhouette of the tree, but then at some point it becomes this optical effect of, and this is what I can't quite figure out: Are we looking at tree bark that's been like sort of filled into the silhouette, or is it? It also feels like it might be the snake skin, and yeah. since there are these snakes that come into play later, I think maybe maybe it's both of those things, or a snake tongue. Like, because it is forked. Sure. Uh, yes, but there's some kind of there's some kind of there's some there's some scales. texture that looks either like yeah it's scales or it's tree bark or it's both or whatever. But, oh, I yeah. think it's definitely snake scales. I think. Okay. Yeah, cool. you're you're right on there. I think so. And then it's got this crazy music over the opening titles, and I looked up the guy who did the music. Is this guy Leonard Rosenman, who I feel like I should know and probably should should know his name. But he did a ton of fucking things. And I'm just going to say the three things that were most like, oh, he did this and he did this and he did this. <laughs> he did Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Okay. Which, of course, Planet of the Apes, Jerry Goldsmith, that's probably my favorite film score of all time. It's pretty good. That's just fucking insane. Yeah. He also, Leonard Roseman, and this, I don't even remember, I'm not even sure what this is referring to. He did the music for Barry Lyndon. God Damn, really? I was just thinking about Barry Lyndon. But I always thought that that Kubrick, for the most part, even in Barry Lyndon, that he's just using classical pieces. But maybe not. Maybe this is just in the style of. I, I can't. I can't think of anything that's not like a pre-existing classical piece in that movie. I mean, there's got to well, be something. He's credited with it. Yeah. I mean, I know. I think for 2001, there was somebody did an actual score for it, and then he was like, "Fuck you," and just used. The stuff he wanted, you know, the sort of the comp track stuff that, or whatever they call it. The yeah, I think he did that know. a lot. He definitely did that yeah. with The Shining. Right. Uh, Him and George Romero, those are the two guys who did that stuff all did the time. <laughs> and I guess Quentin Tarantino at this point, same thing. He had a score. Well, no, not a score. I'm saying like he just instead of making a score, he just uses songs that he wants to. That's well, a Scorsese thing, right? Mean Streets. Well, okay, sure. Had, yes, anybody, had anybody done that before Mean Streets? Other mm. than, I guess, Kubrick? I guess, what okay, that's the answer to my question. Mean Streets was 72, 73, and 2001 was 68, so yeah. So I guess, fucking Kubrick again. Oh, it's always Kubrick. Yeah. Um, so, and then... Leonard Roseman also did, I mean, he did like a million scores, but he also did the animated Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings. Oh, great. I was just talking about that the other day, too. I swear to God. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let me ask you, did, what's his name? Leonard Roseman? Roseman, yeah. Okay. Did he do the score to Lost in America? (laughs) <laughs> you know that's that's so funny that you say lost in america because i was going to bring that up uh-huh. because of the rv um right but also here's the thing I'm, I'm looking it up right now i don't think he did um no but i'll tell you he did uh after lord of the rings in 78 he did the score for the prophecy in 79 uh-huh. promises yeah. in the dark in 79 which i don't even know what that oh, marcia mason ned Beatty. I don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> Friendly Fire. He did the he did the score for the jazz singer, the Neil Diamond version <laughs> of the jazz singer. Oh man! 
He did Hide in Plain Sight with James Caan. You mean he worked after the score for The Jazz Singer? Apparently. Oh, okay. But, but I mean, who knows what that score is? Uh, right. He did the score for Star Trek for the, Vo- the Voyage Home. Oh, well, the best... That's got the best score of all of them, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and he did the score for RoboCop, too. So it's interesting to me that at various times in his career, he did, he like stepped in for the sequel. So right. he did the sequel to Planet of the Apes, and he did the sequel to RoboCop. And I, I'm sure there's got to be pressure in both of those situations to sort of mimic the original score, but not get sued for it. Right. And, and Star Trek had a pretty iconic score as well, so he had to... Mm-hmm. Fuck around with that. Although by Star Trek Four, I don't know what they were doing. I have no uh, recollection of what. You still got to have the the, the yeah. theme in there. Well, but did I don't even did Star Trek have that the 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 TV show theme, the original Star Trek the motion picture? I think it had its own weird fucking. That's also a Jerry Goldsmith. Score, that is Jerry it? Goldsmith. I remember having the soundtrack to that, but yeah, I don't think I, I ever did listened too. to it. Oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty cool. I kind of like Star Trek the motion picture. I know nobody does, but I think it's kind of cool in its own weird, completely fucked up way. Yeah, I, I, I like I like movies that say the motion picture or the movie, you know, as opposed to the microwave, you know, or Obviously, it's the movie. I, I <laughs> yeah. like that. Hot Dog, uh, the movie, which you say hot, you almost saw Mike McPadden introduce. Th- yes, I'm a big Hot Dog, the movie fan. And, and I do have that producer's cut. I don't usually go for producer's cuts. You know, I'm more, <laughs> yeah. of, a, more yeah. of a supporting actor's cut type uh-huh. of guy. But that's, uh, that's a pretty good producer's cut. Yeah. So you so were the- going to say something about Lost in America in this movie. And before you say something, I have a feeling what you're going to say is kind of what I'm going to say. So you should probably mention what this movie in broad strokes is about, right? It's it's Peter Fonda and Warren Oates and their wives go on a cross-country trip to go skiing. And they're in an RV. Yeah. Right. Yes, and, and I and I and I am going to read a plot synopsis that we can barge into every once in a while to like make comments on. But yes, right. But we don't have to get into what happens. But it, it, it's it's about a couple of buddies, yeah. in an RV, and they're and so what were you going to say about Lost in America, which takes place in an RV? Well, what I was going to say is that, and I and I don't and I don't know if this is what you're going to say, but that. There's this music that Leonard Roseman has that kicks in early on in Race with the Devil. That's this sort of jaunty, we're going dun, 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 on. A, dun, 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 yeah. yep. That's why I is, asked. Which I think is very much the same music that happens in Lost in America when it, they go it, off yes. on their RV journey. Um, and it, But it, that's another reason why this movie reminded me of the Parallax view in that I think the structure of both of these movies are, is similar in that the first half of these movies... I feel like they're a much sort of lighter, breezier sort of "Hey, we're having fun" kind of thing. Even Parallax View, which isn't you know, it's a conspiracy thriller all the way through. Right. But for a while, it feels like it's one of these things where it's like Warren Beatty is sort of like the superhero. Like he's a yes, he's a reporter, but he gets in and out of all of these scrapes. You know, he should be dead. There's people trying to kill him, but he he keeps like winning fist fights and 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 gunfights. And there's there's something about He's he's on a raging river, like there's a flood or something, right. and, and he, he somehow manages the, to he uses the, yeah his fishing right. pole to get out of it. Right, 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 right. right. And there's he's that next to kind the dam. of yeah, and there's that yeah. kind of music which makes you feel like you're in this much more standard kind of action thriller. Right. And then the bottom drops out, 
and suddenly you're in a whole other kind of movie and there's no getting back to that first half of the movie. Well, something and similar I, happens in Three Days of the Condor as well. It's yeah. got, got that music and I'm like, I, you know, I watched it over Christmas because it's a Christmas movie. I'm like, what? What the fuck is with this music? I never noticed this music before. Mm-hmm. It's But Sidney Lumet has, uses a lot of terrible, or used to use a lot of terrible music. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, right. But that happens here in Race with the Devil, in that, well, we're just on our journey, and yeah, right. maybe we're going to run into some Satanists, but everything's going to be okay. You know, and then it's not. Yeah. <laughs> then it, well, the, the thing, when I heard that music, I was like, this is just like the music in Lost in America about an RV. And then that got me thinking i was like the the central joke of lost in america is that they're going to lose themselves or no no find themselves by driving across america just like easy rider and the the entire joke is that it's just they're just like easy rider but they're in an rv so they missed the whole point of easy rider and what's going on with this movie and easy rider stars peter fonda so what's going on with this movie is it undercuts Lost in America's joke all the way. Like Peter Fonda has already done that. He's yeah. already he was Easy Rider. Now he's in an RV in this movie. And to drive the point further home, on the back of the RV is a couple of motorcycles. I mean, they're motorbikes, right. but they're a couple of motorcycles. So the whole idea that Lost in America, which is a genius movie, but this genius concept that it's built on has already been done by race with the devil and with the same fucking music. Yep. That's what I thought you were going to say. No. And I'm so glad that you did. Cause I didn't think of that. And that's totally brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I knew there was oh, a reason oh, I was having you do this with me, Scott Lucas. Absolutely great analysis there. Love it. Love. So the music for the music. So, uh, here we go. Let's go through this. I, I grabbed the Wikipedia uh, <laughs> plot synopsis, and I'm going to read it through, but we'll we'll just dive in at points. Uh, For those uh, who haven't seen Race with the Devil, you're going to... Yeah, gonna spoilers ahead. Yeah, and spoilers for every fucking movie that we're going to mention in the middle of this that we've already, we've already like provided spoilers for every like I've already ruined the parallax view for everybody and anybody that hasn't seen. It. I don't think you did. Oh, good. Okay, good. Uh, well, yeah. I don't think okay. there's any way you can. Okay, good. something happens. <laughs> yeah, something happens. <laughs> That's all you said. And there's not a lot of dialogue to explain it. It just yeah. happens. Right. Uh, so Roger Marsh. And Frank Stewart. Now, Roger, I think, is Peter Fonda, and Frank is Warren Oates, or vice versa. That sounds right. Warren Oates is always Frank. They, yes. (laughs) They own a successful motorcycle dealership, according to Wikipedia. I don't know if that's how I would describe it, but maybe. It seems like they have, like, a nice car parts store. Like, it's not just motorcycles. It feels like a, you know, like a full-service car parts yeah but they're definitely more interested in motorcycles they are yes at least peter fonda definitely is yeah but which whatever it is it's definitely successful like he's got a lot of people running working under him and he's he's he doesn't feel the need to hang around anymore you know he can go on vacation and and Right. And when we first meet Warren Oates, he's cruising through this store that they own. And it's right. and it's shot in an actual car parts store for sure. And it's beautiful location. And there's some really nice sort of camera work where you yeah, go through it's really the aisles well done. and you're like, yeah, yeah, you totally believe that this is a place. 
and you totally believe that Warren Oates is the boss. He's moving through that space like he's like he owns it. He definitely owns it, and he's just, he's a, he's a success. Yeah, and then he, then we cut to Peter Fonda, who's on the racetrack, and he's testing out. I guess they also build motorcycles and then race motorcycles or motorbikes. Or they modify motorcycles. Or they modify them. Sure, I, maybe. I mean, and and once again, we get into the easy rider thing. It's like. Peter Fonda can't let go of his old days when he was cruising around on the chopper. He's not riding around on a chopper anymore. It's it's a dirt bike, motocross type of thing. But he's still got one foot in his past. Yeah. And, one, and something that I didn't realize until watching it this week is that Franklin... I, I, shit, I don't, I don't know that actor's name. I can't believe I didn't put it down. Franklin from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, no. Um, really? Is yeah, he's in the pit crew. Uh, Paul, his name is Paul something or Peter Paul. Oh, fuck oh it, the whatever. dude that was in the wheelchair. In, yes, uh, yes, right, yes. And I always, until this movie, thought that the guy who played Franklin really was in a wheelchair. Like, I always believed that Franklin was a paraplegic or whatever. I did too. I did too. And, and I'm still not convinced he's not because in this movie, he's only in those racetrack scenes and he's standing up, but he's not walking. And he's always <laughs> either holding on to the motorcycle or something else. So I'm still not sure how good he is on his Well, feet. he's only oh, ever in movies that take place in Texas. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so he doesn't have to go far. No, I mean Texas is a big state, but he's not going far. Yeah, and but he's totally Franklin, except he's got a mustache in this movie, so that he does yes. he does vary his look a little bit. I didn't realize that was him, but I I did notice uh, as I was looking stuff up the other day that his name came up. Yeah. So together with their wives Kelly and Alice, and that's Loretta Swit and um, what's her name, Lana Laura Parker, La- Laura Parker, right. Laura Parker. And Kelly's small dog. So I guess that's Laura Parker's small dog. It is. They leave San Antonio in a recreational vehicle for a much-anticipated ski vacation in Aspen, Colorado. Um, I love the tour of the RV that they get from Warren Oates. um, That that he's got the four-channel stereo, and there's a microwave for. I think he says browning the bird. (laughs) Um, Then he's got to. He shows him where the exhaust goes. Yes, (laughs) for the oven is like this up here. This is the exhaust. It's like all right, Warren. All right, and I feel like I'm there. Right, and there's a Roman bath, and I and I looked up today because I was like, I don't even actually know what a Roman bath entails, and it's I still can't quite figure out even after googling it. I think it's got something to do with where the water comes into the shower or bathtub, or where it's got it nothing to do with the shape where it's sort of square. Appar- apparently not. Although maybe, okay. maybe, <laughs> but that's not what it said on Google search. But um, I am a little confused. There's a, there's only two. There's only two sort of like wait. I don't understand what's happening in this movie, and this is one of them. Is that Warren Oates seems surprised to find that little dog in the bathroom, but. He's been driving this fucking thing to the thing. Like he, he's already been in the RV with these people. So um. that never <laughs> occurred to me. Well, well, all right. Well, uh, hold on. I mean, he he drove them. He drove uh, Lara and Loretta. Yes. With him, so maybe they were in the RV before he got on, and just he said maybe. they were late, and so he he was kind of. You know, he says, you know how girls so you think are they late. Picked him, you think they picked him up in the RV and then he took over driving? Either that or the RV was there and he shows up 
they said, we're, we're here, we're in the RV, we're waiting for you yeah. on their cell phone. Now, see, my whole, my entire thing's falling apart. Well, no, it's no fine, but I, but it, there's actually, there, I, to tell the truth, I had another slight question, and this is just so nitpicky, but I'm like, how did... How did the RV arrive in the middle of that racetrack? You know, like that's like it's sort of Peter Fonda gets off the track and that thing is just sitting there like in the middle of it. It's I like, love that shot. And once again, it's it's cutting it's cutting off uh, Albert Brooks by five years. It's like <laughs> you got the shot of Peter Fonda on the motorcycle and they're like, yeah, this is what we came for. Peter Fonda on a motorcycle. And then here it comes, the RV. And it's just do 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 It's. It's like it's a funnier joke than anything that Albert Brooks has in Lost in America. Well, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't go that far. But uh, all right, it's no twenty-two, twenty-two. Come on back. You're right. Yeah. What is and and you can't use any part of the. You can't say that. You have to say that thing in a nest. That's great. And a, that thing with sticks and yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and you know this movie Let's doesn't have Gary were, Marshall. Was so. it Brad? Shut up, Brad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could hurt you. Yeah, he's like, she's like, and he goes, "That's why I married her." He's like, "That's why I hired her." <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I realize I would love to see. I think I like any time anybody's getting a tour of an RV in a movie, and I want to see a supercut of all the RV tours that happen in movies. Like there's got, like you know, there's one in 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 Lost in America. Um, what are some yeah, other Nation Alley? Damnation Alley, which is going to come up in our conversation at some point, and I can't remember why, but it shows up in somebody's credits, and I got all excited about it. I think the person who edited this movie edited Damnation Alley. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Break, Breaking Bad, of course, has oh, wonderful RV tours yeah. in it. Um, but I, I, there probably is out there already on YouTube. There's the a new cut. RV movie out now. Oh, is there? Uh, what's that movie called? Uh, the Sound of Metal. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. That's a right. Good that tour can, of that. That yes, exactly. Thank you. That's that's what first triggered this whole thing, and then I forgot all about it. Sound of RV, Metal, which RV fe- Cinema features an RV and a two-piece band, uh, and, and a band that that are just about married. A, a band that actually is a relationship. Right. So there you go. A band it's all that's tied in. obviously uh, based on Jucifer. Oh, is that is that right? Yeah, Jucifer uh, okay. was, I don't remember if they're married or if they were just a couple, but they would travel around in an RV and, and that, yeah, that's what, that's what the band in Sound of Metal is based on. And, the, and to get off point, I, I mean, we did Please a tour do. with Jucifer uh, at the beginning, I don't know, 2003 or something like that. And one of the things that Sound of Metal, which is a great movie, you liked it, right? I loved it. Yeah. One of the things that I, I think that, that they sort of miss out on is Jucifer would also, they had tons of amps on stage. So there's a huge wall of amps. And so, like more amps than, than you would ever, like the entire stage is full of all, all these amps. Some of them don't even work and it's just loud as fuck. And so we're on tour with them, and they're opening up for us. And so they'd play their set, and I would just stand next to the sound guy every night, and he'd look at me with his hands up in the air like, I can't do anything with this. And I would just laugh at him or whoever the sound person was. And so then they would end their set, and we'd be waiting for them to get off stage so we could start our set. 
And she would go straight to the merch booth and start selling stuff. And this poor guy, Ed, the drummer, who just spent 45 minutes beating the fuck out of his instrument, would have to get all these amps off of stage by himself because nobody at these clubs would ever help him. And so we'd be sitting there looking at each other like, we can't let this happen. So after a couple of days, once we realized this was happening, we're helping him take all this stuff off. And he's just drenched in sweat. I've never felt so bad for anybody, but this was every night they would do this. And I've really, if I have one uh, criticism of Sound of Metal, they really, they missed out on some comedy by, you know, not not having that bit in there. But yeah, yeah. it's totally Jucifer. Huh. And so, and they, and they were like romantically linked as well? Yeah. Yeah. And they were in a RV. It wasn't, I don't remember them having a stereo system like like the one in Sound of Metal in that RV. It wasn't nearly as nice as the Airstream in Sound of Metal, but, but yeah, that was their thing. Everybody, and they'd stay on tour. They lived in this thing. They sold all of their possessions, and they stayed on tour, and they never got off. And I, I think that the beginning of Sound of Metal, the, the germ of the idea was that, uh, what's his name? Who? Riz Ahmed? Di- no, nah, directed A Place on the Pond. Oh, yeah, yeah. Derek Sion France. Yeah, I can never say his last name. Yeah, I have no idea. I love him. He's great. But he used to be a drummer, and he he shot a bunch of stuff of Jucifer on tour. And so the guy that ends up directing the movie, uh, what is his name? Damien something Uh, or something with a D? Darius Martyr. Oh, Darius Martyr, right. He, He was spent a lot of time editing that footage and of Jucifer playing and just had this idea in his head that he was going to make this movie. And he, he finally did. And God damn, it's great. But the guy, the drummer in Jucifer didn't lose his hearing, did he? It's not really their story, is it? No, not, not as far as I know. Actually, what happened was Derek started to get tinnitus and that's why he stopped playing drums. Um, whatever. Have you, uh, what do you yes. think of, what do you think of Riz Ahmed as a drummer in that movie? He he looks pretty convincing, and that he totally has the way that Ed, the guy from Jucifer, would play. He's kind of got it down. You can tell he's he's watched Ed play, and he's based his entire style of playing and performance around that. It, it, I'm not one of those guys that needs, in a music movie, that needs the details to be right. But every once in a while, the details are right, like Green Room. And, and I, I appreciate it, you know. I, I like it, but you know, I mean, I love that sound of music. Not sound of music. Uh, Star is born remake. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. But uh, no, but you. But I loved it. There's only two movies that I can think of, and it's probably because I haven't seen enough of uh, movies <laughs> in general. But there's two rock and roll movies that, to me, are the only two rock and roll movies uh, that 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 capture. To me, the real sound of a rock band, and and, and I, I guess it's the way that they recorded this stuff, and the way it's been mixed, and whatever. Um, and one of them is kind of is this is that Star Is Born. I really thought like some of that live stuff. I mean, it doesn't sound right, but it feels right. You know, it doesn't. It it, it just like when she comes on stage and sings that duet with him. I'm like, yeah, I really kind of believe that this is happening. And I mean, I don't believe that she'd be able to 
pick up this song even though she wrote it as quickly right. with that arrangement that's with bullshit another arrangement that's ridiculous I, right i mean and, and okay i'm gonna add another it movie feels in right. here it feels right and the other the, the, this isn't the one i was about to mention but I, I need to throw in once which i love i just that movie makes me cry Ooh. every single time that movie <laughs> really gets my goat oh you, you don't like it i'm not I, i'm not a big fan of it it's not I, I love the idea of it i'm not a big fan of the director of it but just the uh, there's something about it that just just really makes me my skin crawl okay uh i respect that this is going to be a safe place we're going to disagree on stuff and it's just going to be like that's fine but i yeah I, I i think you're right about a star is born and even the 75 version the sound of the band on stage and the way you sort of hear the, the echo uh, when they're in the stadiums, mm-hmm. th- there's there's a realness and to that, even though the rest of it is purely ridiculous. And the yes. idea of Barbara Streisand becoming a huge rock and roll star is just offensive on all levels. Um, but, but, <laughs> but didn't know, it actually happen though i mean she is well a, not a rock there's nothing not, rock and roll right, about anything right. that she does right. in that movie and okay for her to be a pop star is one thing you know but, but now the, he, let me tell you my gold standard for movies that sound like rock and roll to me that are that are not concert movies and and i have to qualify this by saying it it only affected me this way the first time i saw it i saw it in a movie theater i had never seen uh, in its other versions before I saw it in a movie theater in Brooklyn I saw it at the Brooklyn Academy of Music which I have to say for the most part is a really shitty theater complex like <laughs> like the two out of three or three out of five however many theaters there are, are just terrible the sight lines are terrible everything about them is garbage fuck bam but they had one theater and I don't I haven't ever been able to see a movie at this one theater or maybe they've reshaped the thing since I saw this one movie theater there but I went and saw this movie and the sound of this movie, just from the get-go, I was like, holy fuck, I've never heard like rock music sound this good in a movie before. And that was Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh, yeah. That's a good-sounding movie. But like, I watch it a million, I've watched it so many times in so many other venues, especially at home now on Blu-ray and shit. And with my, and it, it sounds good. It never sounds as great as it did at BAM that one time. So like, Bam has great sound. Or just that one theater, and I don't even know which one it was and if it even is in existence anymore. And I'm happy to credit the movie and not Bam. It might just be that it was the perfect combination of movie and sound system there. Yeah. But the, even in that first scene when they're playing at a at a at a <laughs> like a, a buffet place or something, right. it just sounds like, oh, this this sounds like they're playing this live and yeah, the sound uh, of the guitar amp. It's like you can hear that that's an amp, you know. There, there's something about it. Right, and I think, was it Bob Mould who's playing on that? I think he's part of the band on the no, soundtrack album. Yeah. I had no idea. I believe that's the case. No idea. Yeah. All right. Uh, along the way... <laughs> I don't even know where up, we were. <laughs> they set up camp in a desolate meadow in central Texas where Roger and Frank raced their motorcycles together. And I just want to jump in and say they're actually parked right across the river from the creepy tree that we saw in the opening credits. So we know they're in trouble. Right. The only, per- the only being that knows something is about to go down is the dog. Sure. Right. Yeah. 
The dog can smell trouble. The dog can smell Satanists. You know, and seeing the name Kawasaki on those motorbikes, they're motorbikes, right? They're not motorcycles. Or are they motorcycles? I don't know the difference. I don't think there is a difference. Okay. I'm sure someone more, someone, I'm sure somebody cooler than me would know, but I, I don't think there is a difference. But they're Kawasaki, which I remember, God, that was a brand name that I heard every day of my life in the in the 70s and then hadn't thought about in years and i was like i don't even know if they're still in business and i checked and yes they're still kawasaki did uh, kelly leak ride a kawasaki in uh bad news bears i i i I would bet that he does i'm thinking probably i don't think jackie earl haley would ever ride anything (laughs) i used to think he was the coolest thing in the world and then and then i look back and i was like wait I, i what (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, the, his character in that and then in Breaking Away, I mean, those are the two such yeah. fantastic characters. Totally wanted to be that guy. Like, to me, he was just the cool guy that you would look up to. And, and now that I watch it, I'm just like, especially in Bad News Bears, it's just like he's a little runt. And, like, I didn't see it like that at all when I was a kid. I was like, wow, he's so cool and he can do everything anyway well that's just one of the great that that's got to be one of the best movies ever made oh yeah absolutely uh later that night after their wives retired to the rv the men witness what turns out to be a satanic ritual human sacrifice a short distance from their campsite across the river now is that jack starrett in the mask uh, I don't. Main... I was gonna say that it, I was gonna say that it's R. G. Armstrong, the guy who plays the sheriff. Yeah, but R. G. didn't like Jack uh, was originally supposed to play the sheriff. Oh, okay. Oh, you know more than I do about this. Well, I think Lee Frost and Wes Bishop, who worked on the screenplay, were were buddies with Warren Oates, and so they mm. showed the script to Warren Oates, and he was like, "I could." I this is good. I can do this, and I can also get uh, Peter Fonda into this. And they were buddies. I mean, when you watch this movie, they're constantly talking about let's have another drink, partner. What they call each other, brother bear. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it, yeah, and they were making it, a bunch of movies together. They're in the yeah. middle of like a streak of like three or four movies. Everything you see on the screen, you can see happening uh, behind camera. Like as soon as they all cut, it's like, all right, let's start drinking. So, so your think, theory is that Jack Starrett is there pretending to be the sh- playing the sheriff in that ritual scene, and then Jack, yes. So Jack Starrett is that guy, yeah, and the sheriff. He's the ritual guy, and so that after the first week of filming, people from 20th Century Fox came to see the dailies, and they were like, "Well, all you guys are just improvising. You guys aren't. You're not even sticking to the script." They didn't like what they saw at the dailies, so they fired. Uh, they fired Stephen no why do I keep saying Stephen they fired Wes Bishop and brought in Jack Starrett so you know what I mean I I, I think that is Jack Starrett because he was supposed to play and once they put him on as director they brought in R.J. Armstrong to play the sheriff well that makes sense uh, all I'll say is that I hadn't seen this movie in forever when I watched it this week. And when I was watching it, after seeing the ritual scene, and then the first time you see the sheriff, I immediately said, oh, I think he's the fucking guy in the, uh, 
you know, who stabs the woman in the ritual. So I visually made the connection with him, but it all, but it could easily just be the fact that the, that the guy looks like he's got a mustache under that hood. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and what's his name? Jack Starr's got a mustache in this right. movie too. So right. I, it, I, I, I'm happy to believe that that's Jack Starr. It never occurred to me that, that the guy that was doing the stabbing was the sheriff, the sheriff. Okay. until I saw it this time. And then, mm. and then I just watched a bunch of, Jack Starrett movies, and I Me realized too. That, that he was in uh, First Blood. Oh, and he okay. was in uh, Blazing Saddles. Oh, but movies that he's in. Yeah. And then when I was watching the ritual scene, I was like, "Wait a minute, is that him? Is that Jack Starrett? I think it might be him because he's he can, he's pretty mean in First Blood. Uh, yes, and I was just yeah. thinking about that. I was like, what? he he's the only person that that. Rambo kills in First Blood, um, yeah, and even that is more of an accident. Accident, yeah. Than an actual, he didn't do anything. Yeah, no. I I was watching. I I was rewatching movies that I hadn't seen, you know, since college. Like Jack Starrett. Uh, I watched two of the black exploitation movies. I watched Slaughter. Slaughter, yeah. Which I thought was pretty fucking great, and then yep. Cleopatra Jones, which I also thought was pretty great. I've never seen that one. It's good. Shelley Winters is the villain. And she is hamming it up. Wowee. But um, Rip Torn in Slaughter is as sleazy as I've ever seen him. Like, he he looks wow. really fucked up for that whole movie. That's that's saying something. Yeah. Um, I love movies like this where, they're, as an audience member, I'm, like, actively sucked into participating. I can never not see a scene like the ritual thing. And not either think and or say out loud, like, shut the fuck up, Loretta Swit. Like, when she comes out of the RV and she's being loud and, you know, it's like, dude, you're going to get busted. Like, right. I'm such a sucker for those scenes. And this Right. Is Even if you've seen the movie, you're like, yeah. why does she, if only she hadn't said something. And you're like, well, if yeah. she hadn't said something, you wouldn't have a movie to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Well, and then it's always a debate in my head. Well, would that have been a good thing? Maybe, maybe it's better I didn't watch it. Dude, right. <laughs> um, uh, I also love that they get stuck in that river and then um, and that uh, Warren Oates and Peter Fonda think that they can push that gigantic RV just sort of out of the rocks just by, you know, manpower. To be fair, they have been drinking. <laughs> yes, they had. But it really does look cold and nasty in that river that night. Like, that must have been... I kept... I started thinking, what a rough night of shooting this probably was for them. Like, they're standing in the water and it really... You can see their breath, so I really do think it was cold out and... It's not yeah, I mean, there's a lot of. They keep talking about how it uh, in the movie it takes place in July, not July, January. Uh, well, and that brings me to the only other thing that I'm like, I don't understand this part of the movie. Oh, even though I love this part of the movie, and that's that RV park pool scene. Like they're this whole movie, they're dressed for winter, and they're talking about how cold they are, and then all of a sudden they're going swimming, you know, in bikinis and shit. Yeah, and the pool is packed. I'm like, what? What happened to winter time? You're pretty good at picking out the holes, aren't you? No, and I hate doing it, but that no, one just sort of. But but I do lo- but I do love that scene. I think that that's what's her name's best part of the movie. Uh, Laris. Lara. 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 Lara Parker. Lara? Yeah. She was in. Uh, she was in. Um, Dark Shadows. Right. Yeah. You watch Dark Shadows? Uh, a little bit. You know, I I. I would watch anything with vampires. 
But uh, well, that was it for me. Like as a kid, I was like, "Oh, this is about vampires," and but then I was like, "No, this is a fucking soap opera." Right? And, like even the it vampire didn't take stuff long to go. Stupid. Yeah, this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I might as well be watching Days of Our Lives at this right. point. Uh, which I did well. I, I had a girlfriend in high school who was into General Hospital, and she got me into General Hospital, and then she was also into Days of Our Lives. And so, I yeah, my mom liked Days of Our Lives, so I I know a little bit more about that than I should. Mm-hmm. Same here. Yeah. Although it wasn't my mom's fault. Um, uh, after being chased by the Satanists and barely escaping with their lives, they arrive in a small town and report the incident to Sheriff Taylor who I wrote, by the way, looks a lot like what we've been able to see of the head Satanist. But I'm, I'm, I'm loving their it, theory. It could be. And, and and I've seen this movie a lot. And the last time I saw it was a couple of years ago. And I never made that connection that the, hmm. that the, the head of the, that the guy doing the stabbing is the, the uh, sheriff. It's only this time that I thought, is that? And then I looked a little closer to check and see if it looked like RJ. And I think it actually looks more like Jack. Stare it. All right. I'm going to go back and watch. It could be him. You've sent me on a journey. Uh, Sheriff Taylor investigates, but attempts to convince them that they probably only saw hippies killing an animal. And I do love when he explains to them that something about hippies smoke that shit and then stuff their noses and then their arms. (laughs) And then he says, well, this time they ran out of cats or something like that. (laughs) He's got a whole fucking story about. Now, I have it written as Stephen Bishop is Deputy Dave, but I have a feeling Wes Bishop is Deputy Dave. Unless Stephen Bishop is Wes Bishop's brother. That's why I keep calling Wes Bishop Stephen Bishop. So... Mm. I don't know. I'm just going to let that one dangle. In front of a me, so bishop definitely plays Deputy Dave, which is the best name for a deputy. It is great. And I love when Deputy Dave picks up the blood sample with his bare hands <laughs> and then he like licks the envelope. It's like the, you know, it's like the OJ crime scene. Yeah. Um, it's like they couldn't do a worse job of collecting the evidence, which is another keeps- sort of indication that they're not into this and that they already know who did it and it turned out it was them <laughs> but, right um, uh but it's you know it's fun well and what's then, interesting uh, is when they're going out there there's never that moment like as it's happening where peter fonda doesn't as it's happening going hey i didn't tell them how to get to this place it's only afterwards when he goes yeah. hey i never told them how to get to that place which no and i yeah i appreciate the subtlety of this movie right uh and that they don't they, there's not right. There's. I really think that is it. R. G. or R. J. Whoever R. G. Armstrong, the guy. Who, Did I say R. R. J. I think you said R. J. But I think it's, it's R. G. Yes. First of all, this guy. What a fucking resume. I mean, this guy's been in five billion movies. Yeah. Um. You can't. I mean, I know he's a replacement for Jack Starrett, but I, it's hard to picture the movie without him. Like he's he's almost. This movie has a Rosemary's Baby thing going on, and it's like R.G., his sheriff, has is like the Roman cast of, it, of, of this movie. Yeah. But he's also the um, John Cassavetes of this movie in that he never, he there's nothing, he never really signals that he, you know, there's never any like mustache twirling or anything. You know, like yes, he turns out to be the head bad guy, but the, but there's yes. a scene where he sees the the red truck follow them, and there's uh, there's almost a subtle inference that he knows that those guys are going to follow them, and he's 
he's uh, been a part of that, or he's behind the fact that that truck is going to follow them. Yeah, but I love the fact that there is no there is no climactic thing where it's like he makes a big speech about yes we are the her and you know he doesn't he doesn't ever do any of that satanic mumble jumbo at the end. In fact, you could easily miss that he's even in the last scene. You could miss yeah. that everybody who's in that last scene is in that last scene. Right. Unless you're really paying attention to this movie, you don't even you know they don't go out of their way to point out hey everyone you've seen in this movie is now gathered around this fucking ring of fire. Right. And I love that about it. It's a very abrupt sort of like, you know, you can catch this if you want. And if not, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I love uh, I love the, sh- the other sheriff deputy names, too. And they seem to be, well, one of them's name is Harry Dean. Like, you go, the sheriff goes, Harry Dean, you and Booger go the other way. So, they like one sheriff named Harry Dean, which you have to assume was named after Harry Dean Stanton and then right. Booger. Um I, I just want to say one thing about Peter Fonda before we go any further is that he, maybe the one thing that I love about him more than anything else is his taste in eyeglasses. Oh, like He's got the most yes. distinctive Absolutely. his whole career. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I, I, here's the thing. is like the reason I was super excited to see this movie was because of Peter Fonda and because I was a huge Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry fan. Mm-hmm. And I thought that... Peter Fonda was the fucking coolest. And a lot of it had to do, I, I don't know, with the glasses. You know, I wanted glasses like that. And he's got those, they're, they're sunglasses, but they're not that dark. You know, they're, they're kind of eyeglasses, but dark eyeglasses. And he had the, those same kind of glasses in Dirty Mary Crazy Larry. And he's, yeah. he had those glasses in Future World. Too. I don't know if you've ever seen Future World. Uh, I'm going to say something to you. Right. <laughs> the reason that my 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 whole essence of Peter Fonda growing up and for the longest time and maybe still is all Future World. Uh-huh. I was I went to some dumb Star Trek convention in like 75 or 76 at the Hilton Hotel in Manhattan with my friend Steve Ment. And when we walked in there, we discovered that one thing you could do was plop your ass down on the floor of a ballroom, and they were just showing science fiction and horror movies all day, like in 16 millimeter. So uh, I was 10 years old, and we got to see Westworld, and we got to see The Andromeda Strain, and we got to see like two other, like A Silent Running um, Uh and Dark Star. And so Uh we we never saw, we never did anything else. That's what we did, spent the whole day just watching. That was in one day you saw all these movies? Yes. Jesus. And so then, yes. And so when Future World came out, either that year or the next year, I was like all over it. And, um, that that probably wasn't the first time I'd seen Peter Fonda. I probably had seen Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, uh, Dirty, yeah, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry uh, on TV. Well, he used to um, call it Dirty Crazy. Oh, okay. So you can do that yeah. if you want. Dirty Crazy on TV, which is one, and I, I meant to talk about, and we probably won't even have time to talk about all the bummer endings that really fucked me up as a kid yeah. in 70s movies, but that's that was one of the big ones. Yeah, <laughs> dirty mayor, crazy Larry. Yeah, totally. Like he was, he was the the king of glasses and the king of bummer endings. You know, Easy yeah. Rider, Dirty Mary, right? This movie, right? But 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 so Future World, I fucking loved. You know, and I've I've haven't had the courage to watch it in thirty years because I know it's a piece of shit. It's but be bad. I, but it's got, I know it's got Stuart Margolin from the Rockford Files, and I always loved him too. Uh, the guy who plays Angel in the Rockford Files, you know. Yeah, with the beard. 
Yeah, um, sure. and who who, who and, it was was Bl- and it was it was it uh, was Gwyneth Paltrow's mom, Blythe Danner. Oh, she it was Blythe Danner. Yes, yeah. of course it was Blythe Danner. Right. So, yeah. yes, I'm glad I'm glad you know Future World because I was afraid I was going to mention it and you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking no, about? No, I know Future World. That was made for TV. <laughs> no, it was not. Oh, come I on. Saw it I, in the theater. I there totally... was a there was a there was a TV show that I don't know, maybe will only last a couple episodes called Beyond Westworld from maybe a couple of years afterwards. But okay. Future World. First of all, I thought that, listen, I thought Race with the Devil was a TV movie. So did I. So did I. For a few years, that's exactly what I thought. And right? honestly, I don't, you know, if you had to say, if you if you threw Duel and Race with the Devil in front of me and said, pick which one of these is the TV movie, I'd probably pick Race with the Devil 8 yeah. out of 10 times. Yeah. But, I mean, not to say, it's great. And I think... I think they both have more cinematic values than the average TV movie. But I also think the TV movies in the 70s were pretty fucking great. Yeah. Some of them. Some of them. Of course. Uh, Anyway, Future World, Peter Fonda, his glasses, unbeknownst to the sheriff, Roger steals a sample of dirt stained with the murder victim's blood, intent on delivering it to the authorities in Amarillo. He is suspicious of being driven to the crime scene without having had to offer any directions. At the same time, While cleaning, the wives find a cryptic rune (laughs) pinned to the broken rear window of the RV, and they steal books about occultism from the local library to further research the incident, unaware that they're being watched by a man in a red truck. I do love the library scene with those ladies. That's really the only thing they have to do in this movie is the library scene and the pool scene. Otherwise, they're just sort of there to, like, scream and be scared. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. I mean, there's this scene where they're walking around in the woods and the dog smells satanist but uh, yeah. there's not a whole lot for them to do the, the no. romance is between peter and and warren yeah but i do love that they steal those books oh, yeah. um one of the books reveals that the ritual is what satanists often perform to gain magical powers as the foursome leaves town the sheriff notices the red truck that begins to follow the rv making it clear that he's either aware of or part of the satanic cult so there's the scene you were talking about ah um Okay, so here's here's is here's my one other thing about this movie. Uh, it it feels like it's got more than a touch of Scooby Doo to it. <laughs> okay, uh, and, and this morning I started thinking about like a like how great it would be to do like a mashup remake, like an animated shot for shot remake of this movie, but with the Scooby Doo team uh, taking the place of all the lead characters. Which I realize means that like Scooby halfway through is going to wind up disemboweled and hanging from the um, mystery van tour. Even but better, yeah. Fuck it. I think he just sold happen. me. Yeah. But I think I think what makes it work the best is that R. G. Armstrong to me looks exactly like just about every fucking Scooby Doo villain. Like every I, time they pull the hood off of somebody, it's fucking R. G. Armstrong. All right, R. G. Armstrong looks like. And I've been racking my brain trying to figure out what it is, but he looks like a cartoon, especially in this movie. It's his hair. It, it looks like like it's this cartoon, and it's like a pencil drawing type of cartoon. And the guy in that cartoon, and I cannot tell you for the life of me what it is, but the guy in that cartoon has a mustache and the... The scruffy hair on the side, and he looks just like R.G. Armstrong. And I don't expect you to know what I'm talking about, but he looks like a cartoon to me as well. But it is this, it's almost like a scene in a movie that has a cartoon, or I don't know what it is. 
but it's like one well, of those Ramona type of. Uh, he he looks a little like that guy Terry Thomas, and I, you know who I'm talking about with the gap in his teeth, and he's in um, it's a mad 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 world. The English guy, maybe, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I do know who you're talking about. And, and he also, you know, I could see him doing. I mean, he's not really this, but I, he's sort of like that snidely whiplash mm-hmm. from the Penelope pit stop cartoons. Yep. But yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, but I be- totally believe you that there is this thing out there. Well, he reminds me of a cartoon as well. Uh, different cartoon, but oh, it is going to bother me for at least 30 seconds. Well, somebody on social media after they listen to this will tell us well, who we'll you're hope. talking about. There's always somebody out there who knows this shit. Right. Uh, when the couples arrive at an RV park, Kelly feels like she's being stared at by its residents while in a swimming pool and wants to return home. I already complained about the idea that maybe it's too cold to swim, but. I do think that's a super great creepy scene. I like all those sort of like underneath close-ups of all the people staring at her. And yeah, something very Rosemary's Baby about that scene. Very, very, very. Uh, nonetheless, she accepts a dinner invitation from another couple at the park. And this reminded me of another RV movie, uh, that About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson. Okay. He, remember there's like that, I don't know if they're a swinging couple or whatever, but they start... He's at an RV park, and this this husband and wife like won't leave him alone, and they right. don't have dinner with him and stuff. And that seems like right out of this movie. Um, uh, uh, but she I smell an RV their, festival coming up. Yes, uh, she she uh, they're at this restaurant nightclub, and Kelly again feels she's being stared at menacingly this this time by one of the musicians. I love this country western restaurant scene. And it reminds me of a movie, I don't know if you've seen, it's this, uh, about the Australian outback called Wake and Fright. With Wake Donald and Fright is Pleasant. great. Yeah. A- Doesn't this remind you of that? Like, it's like, it, and it's like, oh yeah, the Australian outback and like rural Texas are pretty much the same yeah. thing. And it's the yeah, same Yeah, it's that whole deliverance like, thing. Yes. And Wake and Fright is definitely the Australian deliverance. Uh, th- there's that. Uh, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre has some of that too, but this movie ha- has a lot of deliverance going on, and yes. this idea that that especially Warren Oates is Southern, but when he gets into these parts of Texas, he's not Southern enough, and and that that's a very deliverance type of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shortly afterward, they're forced to fight off. Two rattles. Oh, they they return home from dinner. The group discovers that Kelly's dog has been killed and hanged, causing them to immediately leave the park. Um, shortly afterward, they're forced to fight off two rattlesnakes planted in the RV by the cultists. Was there always rattlesnakes in seventies movies? I mean, uh, think of Westworld. Think of Billy yeah. Jack. It was like. And wait a minute, I got another one for you. Okay. Um, Capricorn One. Oh yeah. James Berlin eats a fucking rattlesnake. <laughs> I'm not. I, I don't know if I've ever seen Capricorn one. Oh, I'll, I'll watch it. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll watch it. I, I didn't want to have to admit that. No, that's I okay. It, I made it this but far. I think you're gonna love it. It's the best Peter Himes movie, which I know isn't saying anything, but there it is. So they fight. They fight off the rattlesnakes, and here's here's the thing that dawned on me this week. Like, oh, and I know that Quentin Tarantino is a Jack Starrett fan, and I'm like. Holy shit! This this is almost a shot for shot. Kill Bill version. Two. Of, oh yeah, Kill Bill Two. Yeah, they're in that motorhome 
mobile home thing and they're fi- fighting off snakes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, snakes was a big thing in the 70s, you know, car chases mm-hmm. and snakes. And you got I got to imagine cuz snakes were just cheap and pe- everybody was afraid of snakes, but any scary movie or movie where there's danger seemed to center around a a scene with a rattler. You're right about that, but I and that seems to have gone by the wayside. Like yeah. that doesn't happen much anymore. Right. Cuz it's dangerous it and you know, you can just you can just you know, uh, fire up a dragon on your computer, you know? <laughs> right. Ugh. Uh, the next day, Kelly's dog is buried, after which Roger and Frank repair the motor and their motorbike's tires, wheels, and gas tanks. Oh, they find that their motorbike's tires, the wheels, and the gas tanks are cut. Hmm. And they purchase a shotgun. Uh, Complete- which. Go ahead. Let's just pause to acknowledge how amazingly easy it is for them to buy that shotgun and as many bullets as they want. It's like easier than if they were just buying milk. The guy's like, "Here's the fucking gun," <laughs> you know. And it's I, and I think it was, I think it was true, right? Yeah. And then I think for a while that probably wouldn't be realistic, and now I feel like probably it is realistic. Right. Yeah. Well, it, I was going to say it's the '70s, but I think it has a lot more to do with Texas. You know, the thing that Freedy liked to do when we were on tour, and I wonder if you guys do this too, is he would love to go to pawn shops. I think he was always looking for like instruments that, mm-hmm. you know, were, were a good bargain. Um, but I got to see like a lot of fucking used guns. And um, I'll tell you the saddest story. We were somewhere. Uh, where is, uh, where's Art? Where's Ardent? What am I, what, what's the. Where's that studio? What, where, where did Big Star do that? Oh, it's stuff? in Memphis. Memphis. We were in Memphis, and we were at some. I don't know if it was a. Re- I think I don't think it was a record store per se. It was like a. It was like a pawn shop or a secondhand store or something. And I was flipping through. Uh, they had a bunch of forty fives like sitting on the counter, and then I found oh, yeah. that they had like a whole stack of uh, of these original <laughs> Big Star forty fives. Oh. Of, of in the street. I think it was in the street and I don't remember what the B-side was and you know and they knew what they were and they're like yeah this was like a pressing you know they had like a whole fucking stack of them and they were cheap I mean they you know and this was like way way after like Big Star was like you know had become a thing and mm-hmm. I mean I, I didn't know much but I knew about Big, I knew Big Star I loved Big Star and I was like holy fuck and there were like five of these things and I said I think they were like you know like I don't know, five bucks each or something. And this so was after the Big Star revival as, yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't remember what, what year did they get, did they do that shit with the posies, that their first, that Columbia thing. I don't that know if that had like, happened yet. Maybe not. That was like right around 90, it was definitely early 90s, I would think. Okay, so maybe that was just about to happen. Um, but I bought them all. But th- and here's another thing I was going to talk to you about is like vehicles and how shitty they are and how hard they are. To, th- this van right. that Freedy had was the worst fucking thing. It had this steering wheel that was like it, you were like driving like a Ouija, Ouija board. Like it was constantly like just like pulling all over the place. I don't know what was wrong with it, but it was almost impossible to drive this <laughs> stupid fucking van. Right. But the other thing about it was, and you know how they have in the in the drivers in the side doors, they have these pockets that yep. you can like put stuff in. Well, yes. that's where I put my Big Star fucking forty fives. How many and Big Star forty fives did you have? Five, five of the exact same one. I was gonna like give them to my friends. Uh huh. 
Um, and I had them in the pocket of this thing. And a couple days later, I reached for them and only then discovered that this stupid door pocket had no bottom. Like it had been cut out. <laughs> so like the, the first time somebody had opened that driver's side door, those, those things had dropped off into the road, never to be seen again. I did not see that one coming. I thought you <laughs> thought you were going to say they they melted. No, I wish. <laughs> uh, they head towards Amarillo while being spied on by a steadily increasing number of cultists who seem to be networked through numerous small Texas towns. Well, here's one thing that Amarillo would not have been the closest town to where they were. There were other towns that were closer, so there was no reason for them to go that far to Amarillo. They could have pulled off to other bigger towns and and uh lived yeah well i get the sense i always had this memory of this movie and i feel like it's sort of backed up watching it that at the, by this point in the movie they're on a road to nowhere they're like in blair witch territory uh. like they can't ever get anywhere they're never gonna find a phone that works uh, they're yeah. never gonna make it to emerald they're on like some weird like you know alternate universe like endless circle that only is going to take them back to that I always thought that they wind up back where they started. That 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 flame of fire is right by that creepy tree. Although I realize, oh, I like no, that. But I realize no, that they you don't actually see that tree at, at the end of the movie. I always thought you did. I still think it might be the same I, spot. But I, I wish that I wish that were true. I love that idea. That would be great. That 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 it's not just all of Texas is Satanists, which you know I I, I think that's a great idea as well. But yeah. uh, but just that they went around in a big circle because maybe somebody put a spell on them and they're completely fucked up. That's that's a great idea. All right, well done. Well, and, Genius. Well, we, listen, you know, I can't believe this movie hasn't already been remade, but I, you know, maybe we could get it going. Shocking, right? Yeah. Unbelievable that this movie has not been remade. Yeah. I mean, I, I would probably hate it and bitch about it, but I cannot believe that it hasn't been remade. I mean, not that a million movies haven't been sort of influenced and are sort of like ripoffs of this, you know. What was right, that? Like stupid? Lost in America? <laughs> yes, like I was thinking more like Red State and other stupid like modern like, you know, trying to be what, Which uh, one? politically, you know, talk about. Like Red State, that stupid Kevin Smith uh horror movie where Right, I haven't seen that, but did you say another I haven't one, either. Just, just Red State was No, it? I just said oh. Red State, but I was, but there are others. I mean, there's you know, there are movies where it's like a, you know, suddenly you find yourself in a conservative thing. Yeah. I mean, there's not there's not the Satanist angle. I mean, certainly the whole Satan thing is a 70s trope that has most, mostly disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this, the satanic panic of the 70s is pretty much died out at some time in the 80s, probably. I know, and these movies are all good and fun and games until you realize that they led to the, all that shit with those Robin Hood Hills murders and those fucking guys being on death row. Oh, right. You know, the, it's all, it's all fucked, man. Like, and then it led to the PMRC. Man. Yeah. 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 And then it led to people storming the Capitol yesterday. I mean, it's all the same fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you got to break some eggs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the couples leave for Amarillo. They're chased by Satanists in various trucks, which the couples escape. Later, they encounter a staged school bus accident that Frank sees through since it occurred on a Sunday. Right. <laughs> None of the children appear hurt. 
The couples flee the scene and have a showdown with the cult members during another high-speed chase that pits their RV against numerous trucks and cars. Roger and Frank kill or injure most of the attackers, and the couples escape. And I will say that this movie really does build up a head of steam. And I, I, you know, when I was growing up, it was the time of Mad Max and Road Warrior. And I know those movies, especially Road Warrior, was always talked about like George Miller had cracked some kind of code. Like he had invented a new way to have car chases that was so much more engaging. And, And it's, you know, I love those movies. I think they're great. But there honestly isn't anything in them that I don't see in some of these Jack Starrett movies of the 70s, especially this one. I think like this is a pretty fucking great, well shot and really well edited car chase thing. All the stuff in and around the RV and shooting yep. through windows and and when that yeah, fucking pickup see- truck blows up and, and flies off the bridge, that's a beautiful stunt. Yeah, you could see... Uh- George Miller seeing this movie, and especially in Road Warrior, where he's got the big tanker, and all the all the cars, well, not all the mm-hmm. cars, but all the motorcycles are going around. Yep. It, it is very reminiscent of that. Uh, yeah, and just and George Miller seeing this and saying, "All right, let's make a a full." Yeah, totally. And let me just say this: I as, so I was watching a bunch of Jack Starr directed movies this week, including that Slaughter movie with Jim Brown. It's a fantastic black exploitation thing and that movie ends with uh a, um jim brown chasing down rip torn who's driving a car and rip torn's car goes over this cliff and and you know spins around and around and ends up upside down and rip torn is pinned in this upside down car and jim brown walks over to him and there's gas leaking all over the place uh-huh. and rip torn is begging him to get out of the car and instead jim brown says fuck off and like lights the thing on fire and rip torn blows up and that's it's it's shot for shot the end mad of max, mad max yeah, yeah. it's official so i george know miller that george miller saw that fan. shit yeah. yeah yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean the one of the reasons that this is probably the, one of the great drive-in movies is it's got all those elements you know it's got the rosemary's baby and the paranoia mm-hmm. of that and it's got the fear of rednecks that you get from deliverance and texas chainsaw massacre and it's got all that car porn you know all the in the 70s there was all these car chases movies and their whole reason for being were the stunts you know and and it, like sort of like these movies that I mean, they were very big in, in my hometown growing up. Uh, movies like Smoking the Bandit and Convoy. And it was just all about... It. And then you got movies like Vanishing Point. And it's all, you know, something you don't see as much anymore. But snakes and cars were the two things that you saw a lot in 70s movies. Um, yeah. And by the way, it was the same in Brooklyn. It was funny. I've been taught... I was... Uh, we had a couple episodes where Smokey and the Bandit came up. And for me, that was like the, as big a movie in 77 as Star Wars was. I, I'm sure I saw that in theaters as many times as I saw Star Wars and totally, lo- totally loved it. And that was in Brooklyn. So it wasn't just a it wasn't just a drive in thing. Although, yes, those movies are totally made for drive in. And of course, I think it's is it Smokey the Bandit three where the fucking there's like a whole Ku Klux Klan chase that's played completely for laughs. And it's like. Yeah, this movie was really only supposed to see, be seen in the South, you know. Yeah. It's like, there's I mean, not, you know. <laughs> this movie finds, I mean, this movie even finds place, uh, finds a spot and it finds room for a country band and a bar fight. 
You know, when yep. the bar fight breaks out, I was like, this movie totally wants to put all the 70s Southern movie drive-in tropes. So you've got it all right there. Uh, well, when I was impressive. looking through, I was going to do this segment with you, and I don't think we're going to do it because we're almost at two hours here. And uh, well, you got to you know. cut this thing down. No, but yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe I'll cut it a little, but <laughs> but what, we'll we'll have to we'll we'll live to to talk another day, um, and in future episodes we won't have our whole like fucking forty minute preamble. Right, how we got to it here. Uh, but, so, but I, I mean, I do want to, but but what I was going to say is that when I was looking through the Chicago newspaper. Uh, for the summer of 75 when this thing was playing first of all it was playing all over the place i mean in the chicagoland area there's like 12 15 theaters that are playing this and half of them seem to be drive-ins i mean i knew that there were a decent amount of drive-ins around here but i didn't realize that that there were that many in the 70s it's i mean this movie was released on new year's day in 75 so was it yeah those drive-ins wouldn't have been open well, this was in the summertime, so either it stuck around or it got re-released. Because this, I saw the, the the I sent you that newspaper ad. That's from like June of seventy-five. Right. I mean, do you think that it 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 opened in like New York and L.A. Uh, well, and then they I, just it got, let it roll out slowly. It got that reviewed. Like in, a, go ahead. No, well, things always got you know before star wars or before jaws and even like shortly after jaws most movies were released more regionally and not these huge national rollouts uh i according to wikipedia the release date was june 27th 1975 yeah, the, the, the thing that i looked up had it as yeah, january 1st we find that all the time. Like we find like listings where the movie's in the wrong year, and it's because it had a preview screening somewhere in like the previous year. So in like '74, like there's all these like Benji, for instance. Uh-huh. Well, Benji's a different story because right. Benji was re- released in Texas in '74, <laughs> and they didn't didn't go national for another year. Uh, but 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 we find the wrong dates for movies all the time. But I think. See, in June, this release date June, is wrong, too. Because, June makes so so much more sense, though. Yeah, it's totally like a summer drive-in movie. But like I'm saying, in the, I'm looking at the ad for June 13th, 75, you know, and it was already playing all over Chicagoland. Um, so I don't know where that date comes from, the, the, the June 27th. And it didn't it didn't get reviewed in New York on the New York Times until July 15th or July 10th. So I don't think it came out in in New York until July. And by the way, the fucking review couldn't be any shorter. It's Vincent Camby. I mean, he sort of recounts the plot and then all he says is, uh, this is a ridiculous mishmash of a movie for people who never grew up which is not to say it's for children. One would think that Mr. Fonder and Mr. Oates had better things to do, but perhaps not. American movie production is in a bad state. Ooh. Okay, well. Well, when you read the the, uh, the press kit for this movie, Peter Fonda and Warren Oates both say over and over how this movie was just a fun thing for the audience, and they try to play that they didn't want to make a big statement, and... Which I don't think anybody ever needs to say or bring up. It's 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 ridiculous. Who gives a fuck? Who do you think you are right. anyway? But but that seemed to be a thing that was on everybody's mind, and maybe that was because uh, uh, Peter Fonda's sister and everyone just 
associated her with mm. weightier films, and why wasn't he yeah. doing that kind of thing? Right. Well, so uh, Mike published two books. Uh, one of them is this heavy metal movies. Have you ever seen this thing? I, I'm aware of it. Yes, it's a pretty thick tome, but I and I wasn't and we've never referred to it before in the in the podcast. But I was wondering if this movie was in it because there are a lot. And sure enough, there there's 666 movies that he has somehow associated in some way with heavy metal. And there's an explanation of what that why he thinks that about these movies or right. what you know what qualifies as a heavy metal movie. But I wanted so to so Conan his, is number one. Right, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this one says Hollywood Hard Men, Peter Fonda, and Warren Oates co star as regular California Joes piloting a Winnebago RV towards a Colorado vacation. Well, first of all, that's wrong, Mike. I'm sorry. Right. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you after the fact that they're not California. <laughs> and maybe if there's another edition of this book, we can get it fixed. But anyway, they have dirt bikes, skis, and their wives in tow, and nothing but blue skies ahead. Come nightfall, though, these gents accidentally witness an outdoor satanic ritual that culminates in a human sacrifice. When they are stopped, the devil worshippers give chase, and the heroes have to, as the title says, race with the devil. Director Jack Starrett earned his colors with hard-driving biker movies, Run Angel Run, The Losers, and booty-stomping blaxploitation, Slaughter and Cleopatra Jones. And he proves equally deft here with a hybrid of small-town occult horror and engine-gunning cat-and-mouse highway pursuit. Whenever the movie seems to be settling into race mode, the nerve-wracking navigation of a flaming Winnebago through twisty mountain byways, out leaps a fresh injection of devil, like the cultist's use of rattlesnakes. The overall storm brewed by Race with the Devil makes it an unsung drive-in metal movie classic and a hell of a good time. Only Starrett knows if the title derives from the hard-hitting 1968 proto-metal jam by Gun, titled Race with the Devil, which was later covered by Judas Priest, Girl School, and Church of Misery. I knew that Girl School did it. Yeah, I knew that Girl School did it, but I didn't know Judas Priest did it. Yeah, there you go. Good write-up. Well done. Although the Cal... California thing. Yeah, that's rough, especially yeah. for you, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so uh, this was fantastic. Uh, well, do you, you want to talk about... You didn't oh, get yeah, to the ahead. end. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, sure. Go for it. But, but one thing I, oh, I, I do want to yes. say about, about the, 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 the climactic chase scene with the RV and the, that car comes up is that... What's the scene where the truck goes on to the side on the two wheels? Yeah. Which, which apparently was a really hard stunt. Uh, yeah. And by the way, all these stunt scenes were shot on a on a winding road, which was called uh, it was called the Devil's Backbone. Oh wow! Which is you know. Anyway, so 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 that scene where the truck is coming and then Easy Rider is shooting everybody. And yeah. the way he gets rid of that truck and defeats it is he pushes the motorcycle. So it, it, in some way, that's his. He's finally he's he's just setting himself free from the past, and he's completely like, "Here you go, no more motorcycle for me." Or else the past is what he uses to to save him and his his wife and his friends. Uh, yeah, he sacrifices his past in order to save his right. future. Yes. Yeah, you can't ever, or else you can't really get away from your past, and 
And it, only if you embrace your past will you get out of 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 the devil. Grip. Were you paying any attention to the replacements when they were doing their last reunion tour and Paul Westerberg was coming out every night with a t-shirt that had one letter in the front and one letter in the back and if you if you like followed all 27 shows that they were doing whatever and like you know wrote it out like he was had a, he had one message that spelled out you know the, the front of his shirt spelled out a message by right, the I remember the tour, that and so what was the, the message and it, was, and it was something like I'm whore, I'm I have to whore my past to something and then the the back was something I love you. Oh it, it was a me- the front was a message about the past and about him like sort of wanting to stop whoring out his past which I guess is what he was thinking about on that last tour <laughs> and the I think the back it might have been just a message to what's her name Juliana Hatfield who I think he I think that whole tour was when he was also sort of coming out with the fact that they were a couple or something. Ah, I did anyway. Know that. I did, for some, yeah, for some reason that reminded. Well, then they did that album together. I uh, remember yeah. that, but I I didn't yeah. know that was why. Yeah. Juliana. Yeah. In fact, uh, well, it wasn't. There was some song. There's some song I think on the maybe on their album, which was about him like telling the band that he was with her or something. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Then there was this Born For Me song, which I think was about him and Winona Ryder. Something like that. I don't know. What a Tomcat. That's neither here nor there. Yes. What a Tomcat. Paul Westerberg. Um, uh, Okay, so I'm sorry. The RV headlights were damaged during the chase, which forces the force him to stop in a field at nightfall. They begin to celebrate when they pick up a radio signal coming from Amarillo. In the middle of their celebration, they hear chanting outside the RV and find themselves... Surrounded by cult members wearing black robes and hoods, including Sheriff Taylor and the couple with whom they'd had dinner. The film ends as the cultists light a ring of fire around the RV, trapping the couples inside while the chanting continues. And I will say this about Jack Starrett, his movie. I mean, it's not that I'm not trying to make a case for him as an auteur or of any kind. But I do think that much in the way that uh, some of these other sort of journeyman directors, like I think... The good ones, and maybe the the binding principle behind all their things is like they're mostly they made pretty good movies. Like you know, if you see Jack Starrett directed a movie, chances are you're going to have a good time. <laughs> like there's going to be some good action and some decent performances and some nice camera work. Although you know, there's nothing like as, as much as there are these car chases in each one of these movies of his that I watched this week. They're not and, and and fight scenes. They're not shot the same way. It's not like he had his particular style of acting. No, it's not like it's not like he's Michael Bay, where everything is equally incoherent and you never know what and where anything's coming from. Right. What was uh, the 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 Dion brothers? Yeah, the Gravy Train, which I was really bummed out about. Actually, oh, you didn't <laughs> like it. it. I loved the end. I thought the last twenty minutes saved it. I thought that whole concept of having that shootout while this building is being demolished Crazy. was. Brilliant, yeah. But I would, but what I was going to say about Jack Starrett was that he seems to sort of have a, a slightly kinder, gentler touch, even in these movies than than a lot of his contemporaries did. So that in the black exploitation movies, like Rip Torn beats the shit out of his girlfriend, but he doesn't kill her. Whereas in every other black exploitation movie, that character would have been dead. Um, and even in this movie. Yeah, it's not a happy ending, and you can you. It's not that hard to sort of play out what's gonna what's about to happen to these people, but but it ends before that happens. Like you, it allows you, it allows you to sort of not 
play out the next 10 minutes or the end of their lives, you know, if you want to. Right. But that's, you know, that was, I don't know. I mean, you know, they're, they're dead. I, I mean, know they're, they're and doomed. I'm saying, right. I'm saying these are just subtle degrees of like, I feel like there are other directors and other films that would have taken it at least another couple minutes. Like they would have, like those, like the, the, the Satanists would have broken into the RV and dragged them out and maybe tied them to some trees and you would have, would have gone that far, you know, like Wicker right. Man or so there's, there's tons of movies that sort of end like this, but go a couple minutes further. And, right. and all I'm saying about Jack Starrett is I found at various points in all of the movies his, of his that I've watched recently that he sort of does isn't as violent, isn't as gory, isn't as brutal about some things as some other filmmakers would have been. And I don't even and I, it's me sort of reaching. And I would also say that the Dion Brothers is a is an exception to that rule, because there's a movie where. The fate of Frederick Forrest, I don't, I didn't see coming at all. And I think, boy, what a fucking tonal shift and sort of unearned gut kind punch. of yeah, gut punch at the end of that <laughs> thing. I'm like, what? A, Why? a shot Why? to the a shot to the gut. <laughs> yeah, it's a shot to the gut. Um, you know that that seems like a movie that doesn't doesn't warrant that ending. Yeah, I mean, I think. That movie is definitely different than the other movies that he's done, which was why I was kind of surprised. Yeah, and it seems like a much lower budget. It also might be that the copy we're watching is so low res, it's hard to tell. It, yeah. it, you know, technically, if it's if it's if it, it feels technically, it feels like they were working with a third of the budget of all the other movies that I've seen him direct. But I mean, you know, he had a great cast. That, he did. But there's all that shit in the first half where they're just hanging out at that park talking to each other. And it's like, what is even going on in this movie? In front of the Capitol building? I mean, that, yeah. that was the thing. I started watching it yesterday and everything that was going on uh, yesterday. Yeah, and then right. I put this on and I'm like, holy shit. And so for me, there was this thing sure. where I was totally getting into it. And then yeah. what's the guy that, that plays the, the strong man? Denny Miller? Yeah. Well, from the neck up, he looked exactly like Trump. He had the Trump yes. hair and everything. <laughs> yes. And I, yeah. I, was just, I was like, I, could, I had to turn it off midway and, and watch the rest of it this morning. I was like, I, I can't do this because I, I kept thinking I'm missing everything. I got to turn back. I got to turn the news back on. No, I, I was going but through I, yeah, the same thing I, yesterday. I, like where I was trying to catch up and watch some movies for this podcast. And I was like, oh, I, I'm missing history here. I no, yeah, yes. Yeah, you, you had to be a witness. <laughs> Wow. To the nonsense yesterday, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so Jack Starrett, we I think we've talked about him plenty. Lee Frost. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So it wasn't it wasn't Wes Bishop. It's Lee Frost who was a director and not a screenwriter, and he wrote this. And I'm, I have to guess that Lee Frost was the one who was maybe originally supposed to direct this. Maybe. But you have you have something that says that it was Wes Bishop. Uh, no, you know, you're right. Again, Jack Starrett replaced Lee Frost as director okay. after a week of shooting. Okay. And the suits from 20th Century Fox paid a visit to the set and got nervous once they realized everybody was improvising their lines. Uh, which, which, uh, another thing that I find interesting is that whole scene where I'm pretty sure Jack Starrett is, is the leader of the, of the cult that scene where they're blurring out the woman's breasts, 
which maybe that's why I thought it was a TV movie for a while. But mm-hmm. it, it makes me think that they were making an R film, and then once they were, mm-hmm. once 20th Century Fox came out, we're like, we're going to replace the director, and you're going to start making a PG film, and and they decided yeah. to blur the that stuff out. Well, that was that's interesting that you say that because that was another example of me thinking, well, here's Jack Starrett being a little bit more subtle and less Herschel Gordon Lewis than a lot of his contemporaries. Because even in that ritual murder scene, you don't get to see that much of anything. No. You know, not only the not the nudity, but you don't. There's not a lot of violence. It's sort of like there's this one stab. It's all from a long shot. You right. know, it's it's pretty. It is PG feeling stuff. Yeah, but, it's, but maybe it's but you're right. Maybe. Yeah, maybe let maybe right. Maybe Lee Frost was doing a less tasteful film, and then Jack Starrett stepped in. Something definitely happened after that first week, and and uh, and things shifted. So, produced by this guy Paul Manslansky, who um, who has produced some stuff that we've talked about on the show before, uh, including this terrible uh, Dom DeLuise. Directed the the one movie that Dom DeLuise directed called Hot Stuff. How oh, have you ever seen I, this? Thing? I do not know that one. That's yeah, it's okay. Um, he also produced a movie called The Bluebird, which is like George Cukor's one of his last films, and oh. with Elizabeth Taylor in the seventies. Terrible movie. But most excitingly for me, he produced Damnation Alley, which is a movie I'm dying to talk about on the show. Maybe we maybe we can do that. Maybe Would so. You like to talk so, about that one time. So he was a. An RV cinema auteur? Yes, yes, yes. Um, Peter Fonda, I think we talked about. Warren Oates, uh, I guess we haven't talked that much about Warren Oates, but to me it's interesting because he seemed equally adept at being like a total alpha male tough guy, but also a weak sort of cuckold, like a vulnerable guy. And, And this movie... Sort of both of those things at once, and I guess there's a lot of movies where where he's where he shows both sides of a character like that. Yeah, but. he's definitely the the sidekick, but you know he he also I feel like he knows that he's the sidekick, and he's fine with that because he's older and he doesn't need to be you know the king of the king of the roost. Uh, yeah, and he and he lets the young cocky guy do that. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's probably a nice thing about all the performances in this movie is that there's nobody kidding themselves that they've got something that they're going to be able to really chew on or make a lot out of. And I think that they're all just, they all seem like they're just sort of happy to play the roles and to not overdo anything and to not try to make something more of it than it is. I think it's just an excuse for all of them to hang out, you know? Yeah. Oates knew the screenwriters and he knew... He knew Fonda, and I think that the screenwriters figured that they could get them together and they could make a movie, and mm-hmm. and Fonda and Oates dug hanging out with each other. Fonda and Oates. You should check out Fonda and Oates' early stuff, by the way. it's it's They, they, they blew up in the <laughs> 80s, but Fonda and Oates in the 70s, yeah. wow. Yeah, before they went disco. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Yes, I, I think that's true, but I, I, I think the history is littered with these movies that were made because people wanted to hang out with each other that turned into like total dog shit, you know? Right. Like at the end product, whereas that's not the case with this. I think they turned out a perfectly good movie here, even if they weren't particularly trying to. Yeah, and I don't think, but they, they weren't trying to sell it. I mean, maybe they didn't think that what they had was that good. 
I mean, there's mm-hmm. nothing, there's not anything original in this movie. It's all scraps from other different movies. But the fact that it's all put together is what makes it original. You know, they took all these different, which we talked about earlier, all these different elements from different genres and made like a great idea for a movie uh, that kind of pleases a whole range of of, of an audience. Yep. Loretta Swit, who, I mean, I don't know, I guess she's hot lips for everybody. Like, I don't know that there's anybody else. I don't think anybody comes at Loretta Swit. I mean, when I found out that Sally Kellerman was hot lips, I was like, what? (laughs) Who the hell is this? Yeah. Although I've come to appreciate her and her body in that movie. But yeah. Um, uh, But I didn't know. And maybe did you know this or not that she was originally she was the original. I don't know if she was Cagney. She was Cagney and Cagney and Lacey in the original TV pilot. No. I yes. I did not know that. I found that out today. Swift played Christine Cagney role in the movie pilot for the television series Cagney and Lacey, but was precluded by contractual obligations from continuing the role. But now, here's the part that totally freaked me out. Not that I've ever seen more than one episode of Cagney and Lacey. Good show. But it's Tyne Daly and uh, Sharon Gless. Okay. Who I always loved. I always loved Sharon Glass. But Sharon Glass, who eventually became Cagney, wasn't the second Cagney. In between Loretta Swit and Sharon Glass, for the first six episodes, Cagney was played by actress Meg Foster. I had no idea. I had no idea that that there were other Cagneys? Or I know. Laces? Me either. Cagneys. Cagneys, right? I, I didn't know. There's that, only ever one Lacey. It's only ever Tyndale. I had no idea that, that it was like Three's Company or Charlie's Angels. I didn't know, realize mm-hmm. there was a revolving door of Cagneys. Yeah. Um, okay, so it, uh, uh, Lara Parker, there's really nothing. From, I don't have anything to say about her. I don't think she makes much of an impression here, and I don't know that she did anywhere else either. No. Even in Dark Shadows. I thought she might have, but No. Nothing. And then R.G. R.G. Armstrong we talked about, and he he's been in five billion movies, and he, he seems like one of these guys that you should always be happy to see because he's always gonna he's just got a fun movie yeah presence. And if him. somebody can tell me what that weird cartoon thing is, where the guy it's scratchy, black and white type of black pencil and white. drawing, you know, it's it's mm. like it's not it's not uh, very complicated or complex animation it's you're really making me simple. think of the pink panther cartoons is it like that no 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 no. It, it it's not even it's not a cartoon series it's just something it might even be a commercial but it you know it's just cheap animation like that's just pen pencil scrawling i, mean, I don't even think things were colored in you know there's no hues it's just like somebody took a pencil and Made a little crude draw- drawing of uh, of RG. It's All right, killing me. Well, I'm excited to see it when somebody finds it for us. It's killing me. I'm going to be thrilled. So I wanted to mention just the editor for a second, John F. Link, because I clicked on his bio. All right. And and his filmography is amazing, but I just want to read this list of four films that he edited all in a row. You ready? I am ready. John F. Link. In, in a row, and I think within the space of two years, edited the following movies. Commando, Predator, 
Die Hard, Ooh. and Roadhouse. Ah, so we went out on a high note. I think so. I saw Roadhouse in a theater on its initial release. So did I. So yeah. I was, I was front row. I was right there at the beginning of the Roadhouse phenomenon. The yeah, that, that movie played for like ten years. That movie played very well in Zion. What a great movie! It is a great movie, and I don't think I realized it at first, uh, but I do love it. So I mean, th- there's a reason that you know you. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons I burned out on the 80s, because all those action movies looked exactly the same or felt the same. And it turns mm-hmm. out that they were all edited by the yeah, same right. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Him or this other guy, Mark Goldblatt, who um, uh, did did everything else, like did Terminator 2 and did um, a bunch of the other Schwarzenegger movies. But yeah. Yes. They had that. They had that style. You know, and they all you're right. They all look the same and they all didn't Goldblatt do Total Recall. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So. They totally yeah. feel the same. Yeah. And then the cinematographer is this guy, Robert Jessup, who shot a ton of movies, uh, including uh, Silent Rage, which is one of the stranger Whoa. Chuck Norris movies. I was just going to bring up Silent Rage. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's, I have a special place in my heart for Silent Rage. It's not a good movie, but uh, it's... Again, here's another movie that... It takes Halloween and fuses it with kung fu movies and sort of a redneck movie, and you know it it it, it has something in common with with a race race with the devil. Just this supernatural element with the redneck movie. Um, yeah, it's very interesting to me. Yeah, even if it's not that good. Right. Well, right. There's a, there's always the problem that in the center of those Chuck Norris movies is Chuck Norris. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, he That's tried. He tried like hell, though, for a while there. Yeah, yeah. All right, Scott. So I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take us through like what was playing the same day. Na, 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 na. Uh, well, well, Jaws we was have... playing. Yes. That that summer. So right. That's really all there is to say. This movie really had didn't have a a chance, did it? No. But I want to play this other game before we leave. Um. That maybe we'll maybe we'll only play this one time. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Okay. This is going to be the Scott Lucas quote game. Uh oh. I'm going to read a quote from you that has stuck with me through the years, <laughs> and I'll, 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 maybe I'll try to come up with these for every week. But, and then you tell me if you know the context of what you said. All right. Like where, where it's from, why you said it, blah blah blah. Are you ready to try this? I'm ready to try this. This might be the one and only time we do this, because this is my favorite Scott Lucas quote. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, one of the reasons I'm trying this with you, I don't know if this is a famous Scott Lucas quote. I don't know if anybody else likes this. or I don't think there are famous Scott Lucas quotes. Well, you might be surprised to find out. Uh, but <laughs> I, there was, I feel like there was a day at, at work where I played this one thing on repeat maybe 30 times and mm-hmm. I never I couldn't get enough of it I think I already know what it is oh good all right let's see if we're on the same page okay huh I wonder if oh, you do, do you want me to tell is. you what I think it is or do uh, you want to tell me the quote first? write it down write it down so that you can show me if it turns out to be the same thing because I don't want you to ruin and so don't show it to me if it turns out to be not the right thing because maybe it'll be next week's or you know whenever we do this again all right um and doesn't have to be all of it. You could, you know, whatever. Or maybe you're thinking of something that's only a word or two. I mean, this isn't long. But. Oh, okay. All right. Go for it. All right. 
I'm going to I'm going to try to read this without any affect. Okay. What did you say? I'm not going to play Dick Jones asshole, so shut up. Now you fucked me up. No. That's, was that the one? No. Oh, good. What I thought right. it was. <laughs> at all. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, no. I have no idea what the context was or anything like that. Oh, oh, okay. So this isn't everyone's favorite that they ask you to say when no. they see you. <laughs> no. What? Tell Wait, me can I con- say it one more time? What did you say? I'm not going to play Dick Jones, asshole, so shut up. Now you fucked me up. No. That just, that just sounds like... <laughs> Is that every night? Yeah. That just sounds like a normal night. At a local okay. H show. Well, according to what I, I don't even know where this recording comes from, but it's it's you maybe thirty seconds into a beautiful acoustic version of Joey, and it's supposedly from the Double Door in like two thousand I don't know five maybe yeah Double Door two thousand five in the middle of Joey, somebody's yelling out play Dick Jones while you're singing Joey, uh-huh. and you just say what did you say? I'm not going to play Dick Jones ass also shut up. You just fucked me up. And then you go right back into singing Joey. That uh, that probably was the show that I as you said as a double door. That's what it says, but I I don't know where I got this fucking thing and it could totally be mislabeled. It's probably double door. The only time I played acoustic at du- double door is when I opened up for uh Tommy Stinson at double Oh cool. Door. So that that's what that would have been. Um and I don't. And for some reason, it says local H, but I'm assuming you would have just been on as yourself. It's just me. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure. I mean, here's some, and you wouldn't think that that uh, a concrete blonde cover of Joey would would do that, uh, but something happens. Would do I, what? Would do what? Well, would, would put it, you in that frame just, of mind. <laughs> yeah. Or, no. Oh no. It, there's something about every time I play that song acoustic. Like there's a show that we played and a huge fucking fight broke out in the middle of joey and i i had to stop and go wait what's going on you guys are brawling in the middle of joey uh by concrete blonde what's going on here something happens when i play that song acoustic it's 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 close to what happens in uh gimme shelter when the stones play sympathy for the devil yeah it and i i believe that I mean, that movie, that song is haunting and probably haunted, um, and especially your version. You do this thing that I that I find myself doing sometimes, and I was this was another question that I had for you, and we could save it for another time, but whatever. Um, when you're, I find myself sometimes picking cover, I, I find myself drawn towards songs to cover that were originally sang by women. Yeah. And I and I'm not sure if it's because oh well I know my version's going to sound different because my voice right. is different and it's a whole different thing, but that made me start wondering, what are my priorities and what I really want to ask what are your pri- what do you do you think you have priorities when it comes to covers, and and here's a couple choices like here's a song that I love but I think that I can do an interesting take on it. Or here's a song I love and I just really want to play it. And whether or not I'm bringing anything to the table, I don't care. I just want to do this song. That's it. I mean, that 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 is the only criteria is that I love it. I mean, I hate ironic covers. I don't ever want to. I, I mean, I'm drawn to pop covers by female artists, not because I think it's funny that, you know, to no, make a heavy version. I, absolutely. It's just and be- when I say your own take on it, I'm not saying an ironic take. I'm oh, just no, no, saying- no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. But but I'm just saying that that is one way you can go about it. And, you know. Right. 
do do a song and make it like there's so many bad punk covers of pop songs like it's it's embarrassing but to, to sort of like you know I, I grew up on abba abba was my first favorite band so maybe mm-hmm. it's because of that but like those songs are great and and i have i, I like to sort of uh, a lot of people can't see past the production of a song and they can't see that to the craft of the actual writing of the song. And I don't know, maybe there's something in me that it's like, Oh no, look, this is a really good song. And if I play it for you in, in a style of music that you like, maybe you'll see that it's a good song. And so, you know, that's why we cover things by Britney Spears or Lord. But, but on the other hand, you're right. Like you can do something and since it's a pop song by a woman, automatically it's going to sound different. And automatically there's a reason for it rather than like a garage. Because sometimes you'll be just playing a song and you're a garage band playing cover, right? right? But I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's all because of that seven seconds cover of 99 Red Balloons. You know, maybe that's all it, all it is. But I guess like a follow up question is that is do you have there been instances where you've had a song where you're like I'm going to cover this and then you've worked it out and then be like you know what I'm not bringing anything like this there's no reason for me to do this yeah but usually what happens is you don't realize that until after it's already done like you <laughs> okay. know I did a Dylan cover once and I was like so into the mm. idea and I was into the lyrics and and it's one of the biggest mistakes I ever made it's completely useless it's like who wants to hear me do a dylan cover it's there's no reason for it uh so but but those are the kind of things but it's a cover so who really gives a shit you know right well scott i've had the best time ever thank you so much for getting me through this first episode uh well i'm sorry to hear about about what happened and uh uh Thanks for thinking of me, really. And and uh, I'm I, sorry for your loss. I would, thank you. And uh, I would love to do this again. So think about it if you uh, want to keep going. All right. Well, I mean, good uh, luck with the editing. <laughs> there's not going to be editing. <laughs> better be some <laughs> well, editing. Be, there'll be a little editing. Okay. I'll tighten it up a little. Yeah. But we'll see. Whatever. Whatever.